So we're talking about some movies today. Hey, Finn. Hi, Finn. Finn. How are you, Finn? How's it going? Finn. Yes. Welcome. I'm talking to you for the first time in this podcast recording. Right at the beginning. Yeah. Definitely first attempt at an intro. No other way to do it. No. We don't cut anything from this podcast. First takes for last take. Yeah. Um, They call us one take freaks. Like Jonathan, like two takes, Jonathan freaks. Yep. Um, which explains the success of all of his work. Um, <laughs> hey, everyone loves Clock Stoppers and the live-action Thunderbirds film. Yeah. Yeah, name a person. They love it. I mean, they came in on time and under budget. Probably. You're listening to Shite and Sound. It's a podcast where I, Yutha Shite, and I, Ben Sound Nicholas, we take questions from our listeners and we give... Uh, I give advice that's sound, and Finn gives advice that's shite. Uh, so first question this week, it's from a window surname, uh, and they're asking about the best way to steal a car. Uh, you go first. Well, I personally always carry around in my pockets a collection of very strong magnets. <laughs> <laughs> and if I see a car... But I think it looks like it needs stealing. I get one of the magnets, pop it onto the door, <laughs> and then use, uh, I mean, like, I have uh, two other magnets <laughs> with, like, the opposite polarity, and I hold those, and I use it to try and pull the door open. Ah. Is there some licorice or sherbet in the middle? Because that was fabulous advice, yeah. Finn. Uh, I've crushed my fingers several <laughs> times. Uh, uh, that's your shot advice. My sound advice is, hey... Don't steal cars. Steal bicycles. They're easier to sell. Yeah. As seen in the, the classic of the Argentine new wave, Rapado by <laughs> Martin Reitman. Well, that's more about mopeds, but still the point holds. Uh, um, it's Ma- on movie right now. I recommend it. It's a, it's a, it's a good, slow uh, Argentinian film. Uh, and just a question here from author, novelist, and co-writer of the Matrix for David Mitchell. Yep. Says, uh, Finn, youth are working on a new story. Any ideas on what it could be about? Hmm. I think... First time for everything. <laughs> <laughs> Taxi. Uh, <laughs> I think it should be... Uh, I think it should be a remake of the show Taxi. <laughs> I think you should write a novelization of Taxi, which includes uh, every single episode. So it, it's going to be probably ten or 20,000 pages long. And it's the script of every episode of Taxi novelized. Uh, great shy advice. My sound advice is, David, have you considered writing um, uh, uh, a long novel that that appears kind of at first blush to be uh, a collection of short stories or novellas that, that nest inside each other and speak to each other, creating this kind of uh, mosaic perspective uh, on a sequence of uh, thematic or, or plot events? Uh, that'd be good. You could uh, call it, off the top of my head, a sky map. Or, no, 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 I've got it. I've got it. Call it cloud. Call it- no, 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 oh. the bone clocks. Oh, I was going to suggest a loud batliff. I just don't get that joke. Just sounds sort of like cloud atlas. Oh, right, 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 mm. right, 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 wrong. Oh, got you. Uh. <laughs> In our third question, oh, God. This is from someone who writes in every week. Yeah. Sexton Super Blake. 
<laughs> you know, uh, our biggest fan. Yeah, if it's your, if, of, of, the, of the Bridgeport Super Blakes. Um, uh, if if it's your first time listening, Sexton Super Blake has um, quite a uh, tumultuous love life, mm. uh, and we've we've given him. Uh, it's a real Serrano de Bergerac situation in that uh, he's, one of us has a weird nose. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Okay, which one of us will say it together? Three, two, one, me. <laughs> okay, yeah, I knew that was going to happen. I'm very, very happy that we both think it's us. Um, uh, uh, but uh, I mean, it do- it doesn't. It's just I just think my nose is just slightly out of proportion to the rest of my face. I don't think it's weird, and it's not like big, and even having a big nose is not necessarily a bad thing. It's and, but it's just the wrong size for my face. Whereas your nose is um, functional, <laughs> does the job, you know. Um, you know, mm. so, uh, so uh, over the past uh, couple of months, Sexton has been uh, dating two people mm. um, under instructions for us. It's always best to keep your options open, yeah. right? Um, uh, Finn advised just dating one person. That's terrible advice. I say always date at least two people because then you know your chances are doubled yeah. for maybe someone brushing their hand against your hand on the third or fourth time you've met them and your heart leaps in this new un- unexpected way and you realize that the the connection you have goes beyond like shared interests or shared sense of humor and and, and to something that that is both biological and and supernatural um but but reading this question it looks like sexton super blake has hit a bit of a problem. Uh, it says, Finn, Yutha, I, as you know, I've been dating uh, Crispin and Doris. Uh, um, I was sure the second was going to be Glover. <laughs> <laughs> if we paused right then and someone had said, hey, Finn, what's the second name that you think Yutha is going to say after saying Crispin? I would have bet every fucking dollar I have but you're going to say Glover. Yeah, I like to zag on people, <laughs> uh, which mainly revolves around not saying Glover. Uh, <laughs> the most surprising thing I do, not saying Glover at every moment. Yeah. When, when you're talking about Donald, it's Faison. <laughs> when you're talking about Danny, it's Houston. <laughs> um, yeah, I consider speech very much like jazz in that it's about the notes you don't play. And in my no, case... The, the note is always Glover. <laughs> Glover. <laughs> um, but... I have, um, I, I have, oh, Sexton, it seems, has married both of them, but they don't know about each other. So mm. how do I deal with being committed or uncommitted to, to two women? White the caper. Uh, what, what do you think? I think most likely they'll never find out. So just split your time between the two of them. And uh, make sure you have uh, two cell phones. Make, make sure you come up with uh, a bunch of really good lies that will never backfire on you. And uh, then I think maybe get both of them pregnant at the same time and then have them go to the same doctor. Could the doctor be Wallace Shawn? I'm thinking he might be. And that's some great shy advice. Here is my sound advice. Um, watch the films The Mother and the Whore by Jean Eustache and... Mickey and Maud by Blake Edwards, mm. and then record two, a podcast about Blake. them. Yeah, <laughs> no, Blake seven takes <laughs> Edwards. Um, 
and, and then see uh, what that tells you. Does that sound like a good, good idea, Finn? Yeah, sounds okay. Well, because I know you've been dating two people at once, but yep. that's just how you specifically refer to your work as a calendar man for two individuals. <laughs> yeah? Have you been having trouble with that? Oh, a, a calendar man isn't someone who has a calendar? Yeah. Not, not like Keeps the, the not, calendar. Right, the calendar not, not, not like the Batman villain calendar man. Well, he, the job is named after mm. the Batman character Calendar Man because the first Calendar Man, mm. person who kept a diary for someone, did also double as a serial killer mm. who killed people on um, famous holidays yeah. throughout, throughout the year. So, uh, inspired by the comic. Yeah. yeah. And of course, in my position as someone who keeps the list of uh, dates and times for people, I'm a Calendar Man, but I, I also moonlight as someone, who, uh, as someone who strains water out of dishes. And uh, in that position, I'm known as Colander Man. Yeah, and while you're moonlighting, to be clear, you're saying moonlighting, which is to say that it's taking place over three distinct eras of your life, where you're played by three different actors. Oh, I, I thought what were you going to say? I was, I was uh, a private investigator who's uh, uh, in love with Sybil Shepherd. And uh, moonlighting. Oh yeah, I just don't know enough. Is it? Is that also Remington Steel or? Is Remington still also in love with Sybil Shepherd? Is that what you're asking? I mean, who who isn't? I mean, when I saw the Heartbreak Kid, I was like, "Oh, I get it." Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, yeah, um, that, that, that fucking that fucking first shot of her with yeah. the sun's God, Elaine May knows how to make a fucking movie. Hmm. <laughs> uh, uh, um, yeah, I, I know. I know what you mean. You've only two of her four movies are uh, unabashed masterpieces. But I've heard tell on the street that she, when she's writing and directing a film that that she conceived uh, and developed yep. and got funded off the name of her many years of hard work as a comedian, she developed some pretty heavy views on uh, how that film should be. Mm. And it is that kind of entitlement that I obviously have no problem in male directors with. But when a woman does it... It really steams my cheese. Is that what people say? I mean, oh, you could... Cons- it, like, really, it really grinds my beans. I Yeah, and if there's one thing about cheese is that... It, I You don't want it steamed. I, I definitely agree it should be... No, yes, st- steamed is what it. Finn, cr- like you're, you're a mess, Finn. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, what is this problem you've been uh, facing as a calendar as the calendar man? <laughs> well, because you're dating two people as a calendar man. I'm dating two people as a calendar <laughs> That's man. That's right. The jo- the joke Jesus I just Christ. made that I just remembered. Um, <laughs> I mean, you know, sometimes their diaries get mixed up and they go to the wrong thing. Crazy. Great. This is a hilarious way to end the bit. There's a lot of, lot of, <laughs> lot of, lot of, lot of not so stuff happening. Hello and welcome to Shite and Sound, the podcast where two comedians watch one of the masterpieces of world cinema and then follow it up with a critically reviled film that is similar in some way. Maybe they share themes, plot, actors, or director. We want to see if counterpointing these two films can bring out some new information or insights. On this episode, we watched number 61 on the Sight and Sound list. The Mother and the Whore, Jean Eustache's self-immolating reaction to the failures of a Nouvelle Vague. Our second film this week is Mickey and Maud, 
Blake Edwards' deftly dull bigamy comedy about the failures of Blake Edwards' movies. Hey, Finn, how you doing? I'm doing okay. You're on Shite and Sound. My name is Yutha Shite. And I'm Finn Sound Nicholas. I'm sorry. I should not have, have asked you to introduce yourself implicitly while you were putting your notebook away. That was very rude of me to think that you would maybe take the time to speak into a microphone while we were recording a fucking podcast. Nope. I'm never going to do that. So, uh, yeah, this is... Uh, on this podcast, uh, we talk about film, good, good film, bad movies, yep. uh, uh, international art film, and, and, and it comes from us having, um, you know, the the origin story is that you know we we um, are pretty unique, I think, in the podcasting landscape of being uh, two white comedians with uh, pretensions above our station, yep. um, who who love engaging with with serious art as a way to make our, you know, core chosen principles, in, in your case, uh, doing jokes uh, about uh, comedy or things you've read online, or in my case, just really uh, hating myself in as public a way as possible and, and trying to elevate them through knowledge of, like, intricate and arcane art film forms. Mm. And, and I've... Uh, and we met and we were like, you know what we should do? We should um, have conversations about, you know, things that interest us. Like, oh, is Under the Silver Lake good? At the time, I think I said no. Yeah. And now I think I'm going to say yes. We change, you know? Or, you know, does it count as a full win as best actress? If your Kate wins lit, or is it by definition a smaller win because it's a wins lit? Mm-hmm. Um, but the thing we've never really unpacked—that's polite. That's the polite laughter that that joke deserves. Mm-hmm. <laughs> calling it a joke is optimistic. No, we've never really gotten into like uh, uh, you know the 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 Batman Year One, the real origins, the Frank Miller comic. So when did you first? Like, how did you get into Finn? Yes. Riddle me that. Why, it's me, Edward Nygma, the Riddler, soon to be portrayed on the screen by uh, Paul Dano. Oh, oh, yeah. Um, Are you excited about having Paul Dano play you? Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and it's interesting because uh, before I was the Riddler, I was a set of twins with uh, kind of nefarious goals towards oil in uh, the 1890s in America, and then uh, after I became the Riddler for a while, and then I became a, a teen boy who hoped to be uh, a fighter pilot, but then yep. discovered that while I was on a road trip with Steve Carell, the mum from Hereditary, Alan Arkin, um, Greg Kinnear, and of course, uh, Zombieland 2's Abigail Breslin, Kit Catteridge, an American girl herself. Discovered I was colorblind. Yeah, I mean, you you jumped out of a car and just screamed "fuck" really loudly. It's the first time you spoke in months. Yeah, yeah, and that. So I've I've I love being played by Paul Dano, mm. and it is something that I've had out of the past. You know, it, yeah. and it just keeps happening. You know, it's not. Yeah, it's, it's no matter. It's a real coincidence. I, 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 
Hi, Riddler. We don't we don't often talk for some reason. Yeah, um, it, it's a real mystery for the ages. <laughs> uh, I'm, I want to ask you, how did you first get it? You know, because most people like films, uh, and those who don't, um, are probably in need of therapy. Yeah, but like, not many people, and with good reason, get into like art film, yeah. you know, international film. Most people are just happy watching films. You know about all the crime, except all the crimes involved in producing those films. Oh, yeah, yeah, I mean, uh, it, it's a dark time. Yeah. Uh, uh, and, and, but don't worry, I've read ahead and it gets much worse. Um, so yeah, how did you first get into liking uh, pretentious films? I honestly do not know. Yeah. I think what it was is, for, for most of my life, I liked nerd stuff, because that felt like outsidery and different to me. And then nerd stuff became the dominant uh, hegemonic uh, form of culture, and I uh, grew to hate it. Yeah. And so I was like, oh, I've got to find uh, the other uh, weird stuff. Yeah. I've, I've got to find stuff that still feels like challenging and different, and uh, that I can uh, lord over other people. Yeah. yeah. But is there like, because for me, uh, Riddler, hi. hi, we're having another conversation. Um, I, yeah, obviously, like, uh, you know, I grew up in Wellington in a liberal art, in a, in a liberal, liberal arty schools, liberal arty parents, mm. um, but, but specifically liberal arty parents who had jobs outside of the arts. So I don't really, I want the question mark over what professional success I've had to be related to my, uh, gender and race. Mm. Um, and, and, uh, uh, and, you know, so there were, there was a lot of like, you know, seeing films with subtitles was not that crazy to me. I, I was taken to films in the film festival pretty yeah. early on. Um, but it was seeing, uh, uh, and yeah, for my 13th or 14th birthday, my dad bought me membership to the Wellington Film Society, which, uh, seems like a good thing. Um, and, and, they did a season of films by the Dardenne brothers. Right. Um, in which, yeah, um, Finn is pointing to the poster I have on the wall that we've discussed before of um, the words the Dardenne brothers in kind of a cartoony flaming heavy metal font. Mm-hmm. And, and it was in the scene, the, the final scene of Rosetta is, uh, I don't want to spoil it, but is a moment of, of extended and exquisite agony. In rock bottom, uh, in a film about a character who just keeps hitting rock bottom, uh, and, 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 and doing a horrific, depressing act presented in this really painful and brilliant way. Uh, and you feel it so hard. And I remember sitting uh, in the Paramount in, in Wellington and thinking like this film, which is in a language I don't understand about a, a character who I have, I that film is about how precarious 
um, employment law is in, in Rosetta to, to boil an incredibly emotional film down to its, its most basic premise. Mm. And, and, and because of my privilege, I've never had issues around things, but I felt so much for her in that moment. And that over the 90 minute journey of that film had taken me to that, that moment outside of myself. Uh, uh, it's one of the closest things to a religious experience I've had. Um, and, and, and soon after that, I saw Before Sunset in the film festival, um, which is like one of the most mainstream, but still arty films. Yeah. It's released by the independent arm of Warner Brothers, mm. you know? Um, and I just remember really, uh, uh, and that film with how it speaks to maturity and, and emotional growth gave me that feeling and I was like it's I was like I have to chase that so is there and so kind of whenever I go into a film yeah when I go into films that are pretentious yeah like if we're talking about liking pretentious uh, or obscure weird films that that's the feeling I'm searching for that's the high yeah um and that's why it is kind of worth busting through everything else do you have a moment like that? There was a film class that I took in my first year of university when I was just starting to like get into film as an art form rather than just like, I'm going to watch The Avengers again. Yeah. and That was the working title of Age of Ultron. Yeah. And this is the class where I saw The 400 Blows, I saw Rashomon, The Bicycle Thieves, I saw The Spirit of a Beehive. And with, with, with like all four of those films, I was like, I, I think very rarely have the that sort of like emotional response to, to films that, that you just described. And I'm, I'm not sure I did with any of those films, but there was just like, oh no, with, with, with Bicycle Thieves, I did. Mm. Like the, the, the ending of Bicycle Thieves, I think is maybe the most devastating two minutes of cinema I've, I've ever seen. It, it is a profoundly beautiful and sad experience. Okay. So let, let's and like, it is built out of such, absolute simplicity and and like it, it feels so inevitable but so crushing at the same time yeah it's amazing yeah i think a thing that is quite hard because when you like something and i think i don't want to speak for both of us but i do think we both like film yeah you know it's not going too far to say that yeah. on this the 45th episode of our podcast on film I think 46, 44th. Something like it's that. Something, it's in the 40s. Um, you know, it's well, having its midlife crisis <laughs> um, on infinite earth. <laughs> Just saying words. Uh, uh, um, and, and, beca- and like part of the, the pain of liking things is coming up against people who, who don't like them. Mm. Film, art film, independent film, film festival, festival films, uh, um, are kind of definitionally have a small audience yeah. and uh, a figure of fun. Like all, like if something is worth liking, people will mock it. You know, um, the opposite of love isn't hate. It's ah, uh, I don't care what the rest of that statement is. Yeah. And so people can really struggle to engage with it. It's very hard to be like, hey, Briar, I want to show you a brighter summer day. It's 
it's four hours long. Uh, it's Taiwanese. And at the end of it, uh, you will discover new pits of emptiness and pain within you uh, that you thought were undiscovered. And, and it feels almost um, immoral that it has been generated and distributed. Um, but that's also kind of exquisitely beautiful and profound in its own way. Mm. And, and I think that part of it is... When she said, no, can we watch something shorter? And you said, okay, fine. There, there's, a, there's this film called Begotten. That's only 40 minutes. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, and I, and, and we talked about it a bit when we looked at Wild Strawberries with, uh, by, by Ingrid Bergman, sorry, Mm -hmm. Ingrid Pitt, um, uh, about like the idea of what art film is kind of black and white pretentiousness that, that burbles along and is, and is abstract. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of voiceover and, when it's not voiceover, it's just people talking. Yeah, usually. And they talk about how they're sad or they hate each other. Yeah, or how they want to have sex. Yeah, or maybe how they hate each other and still want to have sex. And they're <laughs> the, three, the, the three genders. Um, and, and part of when I pitch this podcast to people, um, it, it normally starts with, oh, I don't think you'd like it. <laughs> And, and genuinely, but that's because I have friends with a variety of tastes, not because I, I I like our podcast anyway. Um, it's not me, and, and that's why. Um, uh, 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 is about discovering how to like film. I think uh, in a way, and, and what film is good, and, and kind of my biggest struggles. With the films we've had, are when films think they are something that they're not, Ex- or or people think films, or you come up against like the the issue with Crash is is how much both the film and the world think it is worthy yeah. when it is not, and 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 the thing that I discovered is as I've hit more and more of like the key texts. Of art cinema, revisiting in Chien Andalou, L'Enfant de Paradis. Um, you know, uh, the grand illusion is that these films, which have this cultural consciousness of being pretentious, it's like it's it's like the Citizen Kane or the Wire thing of having to be like, no, 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 it's actually good, you know? Yeah, and like the reason that these things were popular in their day is that like they are populist art. Yeah, and even like uh, I think about there's a film called Oxhide which in many ways is kind of like a grail of in my film life in that I saw, I, I saw it once it was in the New Zealand international film festival. I saw it in the film, what was then called the film archive now, Natonga, um, in a screening there with maybe 10 other people. It is a film literally made by one person and, and her mother and father all playing fictionalized versions of themselves in their tiny um, flat in one of the big cities in China. I won't say Beijing, but I, I don't, it might be Guangzhou, but anyway. Right. Um, and it was a two and a half hour long film that consisted of maybe 30 shots total. And, and a lot of these were like a whole scene. Um, and it was about how uh, uh, the plot was driven by her father runs, uh, makes bags out of oxhide. And so, like, one of the key scenes that's maybe 10 to 20 minutes long, it was a close-up on the needle of his sewing machine. So you'd hear dialogue right, yeah. off, and it would go through. And, and it was hypnotic and beautiful and gripping. 
but it was also um but i i described that and i go like i understand why people wouldn't like that yeah but i understand how it works and so it is interesting to hit a film which is i think and, and so realizing that a lot of what people think art film is it isn't um and that the films that are critically lauded, that are big, that are, that are, you know, Citizen Kane is actually good. Vertigo uh, is not, I think, Hitchcock's best, but is, is actually good. Yeah. You know? Um, or Yee Yee, right? Or you understand what I'm saying. Yeah. Um, and so it is actually really interesting to hit a film that is the opposite of that which is to find a film that is actually three and a half hours of people speaking in French about their boring fucking problems. And it is exactly, in my opinion, as pretentious, irritating, distant. Um, it feels like a waste of time. It feels like people drunk on their own farts. And yet it's also praised by the critical establishment. You know, it's one of the greats of all time. And I don't, and, and that film is uh, The Mother and the Whore, you know? Mm. And I think that's really interesting. I think this is almost the first time that's happened to me. Like, I don't love The Magnificent Ambersons as much as anyone, uh, uh, as much as most other people, but yeah. it's the first time we're like, watching this film was like, oh no, I understand almost wholeheartedly why art film is a joke to people. Do you have any, I was going to end that with a question, mm. but I cannot think of one. So do you have any, like, I, I can't think of other cases of films mm. like that. So, yeah. So we watched both these movies a few days ago. Yeah. And, uh, when, when, when we finished watching Mickey and Maud, you said, can we like take a break and, 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 and do, do the record another day? Cause I'm just not feeling up to it right now. And there, 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 were, there were parts of the mother and the whore where you just looked at the screen and said, this is reprehensible. <laughs> and I think when I finished watching it, my immediate reaction to it was to like, if anyone wants to watch this, just watch any like Joe Swanberg film. It, it'll be the exact same conflict, but it'll be two, it'll be two hours shorter. Yeah. And it'll have like better, it'll have slightly better gender politics. Well, uh, but, but I think since, since then I've been like, Trying to like think more about the film and read, like read other people, read what read what other people have to say about the film and why this film is so lauded. And I think I get it more now than I, than I did. Oh, okay. So you get it? You think? I, I, yeah. I, 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 I think this film. Can I briefly give you my take before you try and help me get it? Uh, sure. Because, because obviously, John Ustash, uh This was his first film. He, well, he, he'd he made a bunch of like shorts yeah. and documentary yeah, yeah. stuff. Yeah. This is his first fe yeah. feature film. He, he, he was, he was a sort of like ancillary figure of the, of the Nouvelle Vague. He worked with, he worked with Jacques Rivette. Uh, he worked with, he worked with Truffaut and Godard yeah. in, in, in various capacities. And yeah. This is his first like major work as a filmmaker. Yeah. What, what I, what I've seen him referred to as like is that he was like, he, and his films are very distinctly post Nouvelle Vague. Yeah. Um, and that he's kind of attached, but he's not, no one would ever, you know, and he's not even like in the left bank with Chris Marker and Varda, you know, yeah. um, and, and all, and all those other scamps. And the, obviously there's, 
uh, inherently made one of the film Mepiti, my little loves yeah um where which i watched the first half of and i and i do want to finish it's an interesting reflection on childhood um and, and by dint of being uh, a whole you know the length of pop star never stop never <laughs> stopping shorter than mother and the whore is, yeah. is my favorite uh, of his too um but obviously uh the nouvelle vague in in a to speak very generally was about taking these kind of stately the stately performative uh uh, uh painterly yeah aspect um uh, uh, of film up until that point. Yes. Yeah. One of the like founding documents of the Nouvelle Vague was an article written by Francois Truffaut for Cahiers du Cinéma, uh, which is called A Certain Tendency in French Cinema. Yeah. Which was about how French cinema is 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 too interested in being respectable. Yeah. And it, it it is too bound up in 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 form and convention to do anything genuinely interesting anymore. And what Truffaut and and Godard and and all their contemporaries set out to do yeah. was to break down those conventions and tell tell the sorts of stories that that couldn't be told un, under the old model, and to 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 make to make films with with amateur actors, to make films out on the streets, to yeah. make films about about working class people, to make films. That were inspired by American films. They're like playing off those conventions as well, and yeah. Um, and, and and how that manifested again to speak so fucking broadly <laughs> is like the thing about Breathless, Band Apart, Four Hundred Blows, uh, is that the narratives are still like on paper their plots are not a million miles away from the plots of films that went beforehand. Yeah. Um, and, and it is how they are presented and how they choose to look and the kind, mm. and the kind of people those plots occur to. But Breathless is still kind of a caper. And like, that's the pleasure in it. We're going to fucking get to Breathless. Yeah. And where John Ustash came in and said, no, no, no. What if we took this new way of looking, the, 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 these cuts, this, this, this focus on minutiae and, and, and and even more focused on the the mundane. What it is? What is it like to make a film that just looks at quote unquote like a normal life? Do you mm. know what I mean? Like just just a person drifting through their life. And, yeah. And, and whereas the like early films of Godard and even the like later films of Godard are often defined by their like sense of humor and like a very fast pace. Yeah. What Ustash does is every scene is long and drawn out, mostly in one is close ups on people's faces as yeah. they're talking and like and giving these sort of like long rambling monologues. Yeah, and yeah, you compared it to Mumblecore. And I, yeah. I think that's yeah, a thing I thought about a lot it was kind of like New Zealand's Mumblecore, which was the Arrow Street digital um filmmakers that made a lot of films like this, some of which are really interesting and it's and it's really sad that they're quite hard to find. Mm-hmm. The Mother in the Whore and Pracy is uh, about a man's relationship to several women yeah. um, and, and how he navigates that and how they navigate it and, and they talk about it a lot and uh, and it feels like there's no, uh, you know, at no point do they have to steal a diamond or go on the run or even... Well, there's, there's one person who's on the run at some point. Oh, yeah, but yeah. like barely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Barely. Um, uh, that that's not the point. No, it, it, it's all kind of. I mean, it, it's sort of the point, but like the the more interesting thing is happening off screen. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah, absolutely. Mm. It's absolutely yeah. the point. Yeah. yeah, 
that we've had whole generations upon generations of films after this that are like, what if we made a film, but that is lit, that is just that could be conceivable, where the narrative is full of dog legs and conversation, and I can and, and, and people talking explicitly about sex and their feelings and their inner landscapes without having to shroud that in, in with a narrative push, uh, and like there have been great cases of that. I mentioned the before films earlier. Yeah. Um, and, oh, yeah, no, there are a million examples. And I think a lot of, because this film is really praised. This is another one of those big films. Yeah. In short, my take on it is because I think this film gets a lot of points for showing up. I think this was a lot of people's first engagement with that kind of cinema. The first time we uh, you're going to a film and just seeing people talk. Mm. Um, and I just, I don't think that innovation on its own, I don't think you get points for just showing up. Yeah. Um, and I think if you take away that, I think if you take away, this is the first time, or, or the fir- um, this was done or the first time a lot of people saw something like this, I think what you are left with is, um, you know, I'm not saying it shouldn't have been made. Yeah. I'm saying it being widely held and distributed it is a damage to cinema. Because, no, that's so harsh, but it is like there are films that do this but so much better, in my opinion. Right. And that we hold this one up as the innovator drives people away. So that is my take. Yeah. You think you get it more. Yeah. So I tried to read a, a bit more on the film because there has to be like kind of more going on here than just it's a bunch of people talking about nothing. I know. Well, it's not. I wouldn't say it's nothing. Oh, well, yeah, 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 yeah. But so. Unless you're using it, it in the Shakespearean sense and yeah. then literally. Or, or in the yeah. Seinfeldian sense. Or, like, you've typoed it and you're writing the word nothing. So, I think that this, this, this is a film that is post-Nouvelle Vague, both in the sense that it is after the Nouvelle Vague. And some, some people, like, uh, some people like, like Jonathan Rosenbaum, see this as a sort of capstone on, on the Nouvelle Vague. This is Jean-Luc Sartre putting a bullet in the Nouvelle Vague. Yeah, so it, it's not just after, it is also a critique of it. And that becomes very clear when you look at the cast, right? The top billed person of the cast is an actress called Bernadette Lafont, yeah. who was the lead of The Troublemakers, which was Francois Truffaut's uh, first major short that came out the year before The 400 Blows. Mm-hmm. Then uh, the, the second billed person is, is Jean-Pierre Lourd, yeah. who was like, literally Antoine Donnell. Yeah, who was like, like, uh, like, if, like the, the most iconic actor, like one of like the two most iconic actors of the French New Wave. Yeah. He, he, yeah, he made a ton of films. Worked with with Truffaut. He worked with he worked with Godard a bunch. He worked with Jacques Rivette. Like he he is he's the guy. Yeah, and he's, he's, he started off as this like amateur child actor, and then came to define everything that the Nouvelle Vague stands for. Yeah, like him or Seberg. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so I think both of these actors are cast in a way to comment on their work with, with Truffaut specifically. And I think the the thing to emphasize with Jean-Pierre Lourdes, as I said, literally Antoine Donnell. And if you don't know who Antoine Donnell is, Antoine Donnell is the lead character of The 400 Blows uh, and is um, 
which is an autobiographical film by Truffaut. We, yeah. We'll get to when we get to. And, and Anton Donnell is the lead character, is Truffaut to, yeah. to a greater or lesser extent. And, and uh, then uh, over the next, you know, tw- 20 years, essentially, Truffaut made another four films with Lourdes as Donnell, charting the course of Donnell's life and using it as a way to comment on his own life and his own failings and. Yeah, and so that is kind of who who Jean Pierre Lourdes is. Yeah, and so he's literally, in a way, casting Truffaut. Yeah, like it is. It's not even really subtextual. Yeah, he is casting Truffaut, and he is casting Truffaut as Jean Ustache yeah. because this film is based on Ustache as a younger man, yeah. and a lot of the monologues in this are based on real conversations that Ustache had and real things that he thought and said when he was a when he was a a dumb idiot in his 20s. And in some cases, with the people playing them. Yeah. Uh, uh, the- yeah. And, and, yeah. and so uh, the main actress, Bernadette Lafont, she had been a, a, a previous girlfriend of, of Ustache's, yeah. and he said he would only make this film if, if she and, and Lourdes uh, like, agreed to act in it, because otherwise there was sort of no point in it. Yeah. And so what this film is, a man who was raised in and defined by the, the, the French New Wave of Cinema looking back on how the approach to relationships and the approach to male intellectual pretension, all of that stuff that defined the Nouvelle Vague, how all of that made him a terrible person to be around and fucked up his relationships and uh, and caused him to treat people really badly. And I, I think I have this problem a lot more with French films than in any other sort of film where there is just this real urge to take it exactly on face value. And be like, this is a French film. There is like, it's full of adultery. It's about like, it, and it's so it's like, it's it's pro adultery. It's pro cheating on people because that's what that's what the fucking French are like. And <laughs> and I, I do I do that with French films all the time. Yeah. I I did that with the Agnes Varda film Live on Her when I first saw it, and I was like, oh, like this film looks incredible, good performances, but I, I'm I'm not really sure I like. It's all like flippant approach to this stuff. And then as I thought more about it, I was like, oh no, the, the entire point of Live on Her is, hey, isn't it fucked up how casually French society and French filmmakers approach this topic that has, like, serious ramifications for other people and, like, especially women? And I think, like, when I try and think more about this film, I've, I think it, it, it seems more and more like it is not just a representation of this sort of character, but it's about the society that formed these sorts of characters and about how their bad ideas and their self-absorption leads to incredible mental harm. I do not think you are wrong that that is the intent where I disagree. Uh, uh, and and that, that was a thought I had while watching. Mm. Uh, and I think that is what almost every French film would say. This is a mm. comment on these things, but also because uh, French art cinema is so obviously one that is in many ways driven by aesthetic and singular aesthetic. And as there was much conversation, like, is there a moral way to represent violence on screen without it seeming attractive? I think you hit uh, what I'm going to casually term the Mad Men problem, which is that I think, and, and this is not to say that the solution to this film is to ha- to to have a bit where. Jean-Pierre Lourdes breaks down in tears and says, oh, no, I've been distorted by the world. Yeah, because there are lots of parts where you, where you can just see that. Yeah. And, and like, there's also the, 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 like, the like social network scene where his, his girlfriend 
like he's talking to his girlfriend at a cafe and she's like, yeah. no, you're a fucking asshole. Yeah. Everyone hates you. Um, but he is still the lead of a film. Yeah. And he's still real cool. Like he, he dresses well, I think. There's lots of great ties that he can oh, wear. No, he, he, he doesn't wear ties. He wears scarves wrapped around his neck like a tie. Oh, yeah. I just, I, I yeah. just, clear, what we just learned is I have a looser definition of tie yeah. than you. Uh, uh, I, I apologize for not being clearer, and I hope that in time you can learn to forgive me. I think part of, like, I think a corollary to you don't get points for showing up, especially when you're coming from a place of privilege. Like, John Ustache was already, Jean Ustache was already in the world. He had access to these things. It was not very hard to make a film, you know? I think, yeah, a corollary to you don't get points for showing up is point just pointing at something and saying thing bad, especially if you're taking just off the top of my head three and a half hours to do that isn't enough for me. But yeah, that's just my opinion. Change it. Uh, you're wrong. Yeah. Done. Great. Did it. Yeah. I just, and so much it seems of French cinema or at least lauded French cinema it is, um, a decades upon decades uh, of of male critics pointing at films that are ostensibly about how men are bad and going brilliant, and then giving the Caesar Award for Best Director to Roman, Roman Polanski. Polanski yeah, you yeah. know, so I think it's the same danger as irony because ironic humour, and I think a lot of uh, the fallout and rise of re-rise of fascism at least you know in in first world countries came from a place of of you know you know pewdiepie does not genuinely think that hitler did nothing wrong yeah uh the the joke there is that such an unacceptable statement but doing that over and over again as a comment on it because everyone knows it's wrong mm. puts it out there more spreads the idea and, and i think a similar principle, but not the same principle, applies to how the, the 20th century was a lot of men making films about how men are bad and should change. Yeah. And they didn't. And so yeah, they're, they're, that's my problem with and that. I mean, like, to like, prove on how much things haven't changed, this film also talks about ironic fascism thing. The best, char- the best friend of, of Jean-Pierre yeah. Lord's character. <laughs> not the best character. No, no. His best friend is this long-haired layabout weirdo who just sits in his apartment that's filled with, like, books about the Nazis. Yeah. And, and yeah, and, and is just, like, talking talking about fascism all day, talk, like, talking about Nazis, look, looking at pictures of, like, looking at pictures of SS soldiers. He's, he owns, like, a bunch of records by, by this woman, uh, who was the, the, like, Nazis answer to Marlene Dietrich. Yeah. After she left Germany, the Nazis were like, Oh well, we've got we've got this new one. He he's and he's got a bunch of records by her. Yeah, and he and that that's what leads to a, at one point Jean Pierre Lord's character uh, who, who's who's called Alexandre. Uh, he he comes into his friend's apartment. Uh, his friend is sitting in a wheelchair. And he's like, oh, wh- 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 where did you give a wheelchair from? He's like, oh, I, st- I, st- I stole it from someone. I'm like, oh, who did you steal it from? Not oh, some some cripple. And and it is, yeah, it's just these like these like sort of li- little little ways that like. These people engaging ironically in, in, in fascism come to 
come, come to like try and, try and like re- replicate the the, the, the the like mindset that they were engaging in ironically. Oh yeah, um, and I think that subplot is much more successful. Yeah, that, than than the main plot, and, and that is because things have changed, you mm. know, and, and for, for better and, and worse, like it, it spoke to the world. It, and I think kind of the, the core of the problem for me is that it, it treats the problems like fascism is <laughs> prima facie bad. Mm. Uh, I think, uh, I think uh, uh, all the effort to rebrand fascism and, and, and Nazism, alt-rightism, uh, libertarianism some forms of libertarianism yeah I, I want to be clear there are some people who genuinely hold libertarian views and i find that ide- ideologically consistent yeah um uh, uh but also a lot of people steal that anyway um the mental gymnastics and rebranding you have to do to get to that point we're not the kkk where it's just white pride it's not white pride it's just white nationalism it's not White nationalism, it's just that all lives matter, show that it's prima facie a bad thing. Um, and, and while there, there have obviously been steps in feminism in, in the past a century, I, I hope, I hope, I think there have been, yeah. but I would not, you know, uh, for several reasons I would not know. Um, the the uh, it is a lot harder for some people i think because it is it is also prima facie obvious that uh men and women are different see some of them mm. drive this way and some of them drive that way yeah etc etc some of them be shopping <laughs> yeah and others are bees photoshopping it's men every morning all all all, all, all men are bees yeah they all Photoshop? Yeah. Okay. Yes. Name a man. Uh, B. Osama Bin Laden. He's a B. Okay. Photoshop. Uh, Barry B. Benson. Ah, not a B. Ah. What's he? Wasp. Who Brooks. uses... Um, Mac Paint. Makeup, yeah. Um, and... And... <laughs> And so it is harder, it is a more complex issue for that reason. Um, and so treating it the same as the issues of ironic fascism, I think shows a, a not a misunderstanding, the wrong kind of engagement with it. I think there, there is more to the film than just like saying, oh, oh it's bad. Oh yeah, no, no, I'm right. not. I, I, yeah, no, and yeah. I, I'm, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. I was, I was only meaning to add on, and I'm right, sure yeah. there's well because it, it is also a film that's very much in the wake of uh, the June 1968 riots, yes. right? Which, like all French cinema after it is, yeah. This is all the major turning points in French society in the the in the second half of the 20th century. Yeah, yeah, and. If the, 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 like the, this is the point where 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 Godard gets like really political. The, yeah. the, this is the point where he stops being just so like critical of of government, critical of capitalism, but is now like a Maoist. Uh, yeah, and like <laughs> you don't much reading up on the sixty eight stuff. Um, uh, like ish. Yeah, like I I know about it. I've read the Wikipedia page. Uh, I have read it at 
you know, when I've read other texts about that time, yeah. it's mentioned it. I've never focused on it. It's, okay. uh, and that's to my regret. It seems, oh, God, what a cultural choice. Seems really interesting. Yeah. Because, like, my take, and this is me creating a springboard for you to jump off of, uh, is that things weren't great. Um, and, and, and so starting with a set of student strikes that turned into general strikes, uh, France had a pretty big, pretty close to a revolution. Yeah. Um, and while there were clear aesthetic outcomes, um, where the major political change happened is uh, a thing that's kind of debated because there were there were there were offerings given at the end, yeah, um, from the establishment to the protesters, but whether they really manifested any changes, a big question. Yeah, and a lot of the French cinema that came out of this. It's more openly political, but yeah. it, it, but it's also very disaffected with politics and yet cynical yeah. as well yeah yeah because there was this like real sense among leftists in france like like this is it this is the moment this is the close we're ever going to get yeah. like there's going to be there's going to be a, a communist uprising we're going to take control of france and then and then like and we're, we're, we're going to do it and then it just it just didn't happen and yeah and, and so like yeah it and it was a Bernie Sanders situation, and they weren't hoping in the dark. There was a genuine choice. It was a Corbyn thing yeah. as well, where the power structure did such a good job of repressing it, they turned it into a failure. They yeah. they forced their opponents to snatch failure from the jaws of victory. Yeah, and, and there's a sense you get from French people, if it couldn't happen in France, like yeah. it, it kind of can't happen anywhere. Because fr- France is, you know, it, it's, it's the country of the French Revolution. It, it did. Yeah. It was the like only like it was the, the first country to have a real successful proper revolution, instituted democracy, overthrow the like overthrow the old regime. Yeah. Even to this day, France knows how to do a protest, knows how to do a riot better than most other Western countries. Uh, I, uh, Western European yeah, countries, yeah. yeah. Um, I, I uh, the of the white countries, yeah. Of the white countries, yes. Though, of course. Um, I, I think that has recently been toppled because, like, Black Lives Matter have been doing some real incredible rioting. Yeah. And, and to be clear, that's an incredibly it's good a, and what, vital thing. Yeah. But, but, but yeah, so... I, I didn't hear you agree because you normally say a different color of Lives Matter, blue ones... Because you love Blue Man Group, yeah, and the Smurfs, and and uh, 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 love love David Cross on Arrested Development. Do you? Yeah, I think he's pretty funny on that. Oh yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's Finn's unpopular opinion of the day. David Cross is good on Arrested Development. Imagine nobody starring <laughs> David Cross. <laughs> uh, he'll 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 do something like that eventually. Like, he, he did fucking Elvin and the Chipmunks, you know. Yeah, but also, isn't he one of those people that's, like, just horrific to work with, possibly? I, I, I don't think so. Huh. I mean, I think, I think he was bad to work with on Elvin and the Chipmunks, because he fucking hated being in those movies. Yeah. And in the, in the third one, which is the one where they get chipwrecked. What? Yeah. Christ, and, and, do they, are they okay? Do you know the story about him filming that one? No. 
So, partway through the film, I think once they get to the island, starts off on a cruise ship and they're on a cruise ship for ages. Yeah. Uh, after they get to the island, it's revealed that a character who is in like a big mascot suit the whole time they're on the ship is actually David Cross. That's right. But yeah. They force David Cross to be on this cruise ship the entire time, and, like shooting in the big mascot suit. Uh, like um, Michael Fassbender and Frank. Yeah. yeah. Except Michael Fassbender F- probably wanted to do that. Yeah. Yeah. My favorite, um, uh, uh, re- one of my favorite repeated press junker interview quotes is because John Ronson wrote or co-wrote the script yeah. for Frank and is often asked, was he really in that head for that whole film? Mm. And he goes like, yes. And they go like, but you can't prove it. How do you know that? Did they just tell you? Were you on set every day? He's like, no, no, I just, I was sent the rushes. And so I would see at the beginning and end of takes when it was Michael Fassbender, they would put, he would put the helmet on. They would snap the, the they would clap the clapper. He would act and then take it off. And I want to see that edit of that film <laughs> where every shot is just extended by a couple of seconds yeah. at either end. I like that film. I think it's good. I've still never seen it. I think it, it's good. I think it has, in the modern era where the easiest way to end a soulful, intricate expression of unresolvable emotions is to end with a moment of catharsis of either people singing or dancing. Mm-hmm. Um, the scene where the final song they sing is my favorite example of that. Um, okay. Being aware that, that I don't count Beau Travail as part of that. Right. Yeah. Um, as, as part of the modern era of, of that. Uh, it's, it's great. Check out the song I Love You All. Uh, my favorite song that starts with the word stale beer. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. The Revolution. Yeah, so it, it, it was this like real moment of of defeat, not just for French leftism, but for, for like for like international leftism. And a lot I've read about the mother and the whore talks about how it is in response to those things, and obviously they talk about it at mm. times. And, and there's the whole cynicism thing. Yeah, it, yeah, it, it, it is a film like entirely about disaffection, and there are parts that are explicitly about political disaffection, where he, where 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 Alexander talks about about voting and how it's bullshit. And he 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 brings up May six uh, May nineteen sixty eight a lot. Yeah, it's never a film that feels political in the same way that 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 that, that Godard always does. I I think uh, um, it, it it's expressing a different sort of politics. I think, and and I think it feels political. I think it was built to be political because it was built for a certain context that we are not in. Yeah, I was reading a. Uh, I was reading a review of this film by the critic Jonathan Rosenbaum, mm. who wrote this review in the nineties. But he saw this film on its like release at Cannes in nineteen seventy three, mm. and just like what a sort of, like epical thing it was, or epochal. Is that more of a way of saying it? Yeah, I yeah. thought you were inventing no, no, a word that no. it was like ep- an epic, ep- ep- epochal. Yeah, epochal. Yeah, yeah. yeah it, it, it was apocalypse now. Yeah, <laughs> ep- apocalypto. Yeah, he 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 talks about Simmons film on on its first release when it was playing at Cannes, and just how 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 totally different it felt from from any other film that he'd seen, and also how his his perception of the film has changed over the years, and how he he saw it a bunch in the seventies, but then from the early eighties he like he he saw it once in the early eighties, then hadn't seen it again until the like mid nineties, and and how it and yeah and and like how the the like context of everything around it changes. And how we loved it when it first came out, 
he sort of like wants to despise it now because he he, he 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 finds the way that it is about the things that it's about to be so like dispiriting and off-putting but but it also has a hold over him that he can't escape and i think it's a the it's a really good review I recommend anyone read the the jonathan rosenbaum review of the mother and the whore it's a good bit of writing i mean just talk about the, the, the plot like very broadly yeah, it is. There's a, there's a guy called Alexander. Yeah, he, he lives. He has a very bad, no good day. Yeah, uh, he uh, he he's living with a woman called Marie. She is probably ten years older than him. Maybe she's she's supposed to be a fair bit older than him. He's in his twenties. She's in her thirties. She might be like five or six years older than him. He's living with this woman who sort of takes care of him. I, I guess like he he does nothing with his life. He's he doesn't have a job, doesn't seem to have any hobbies. He just sort of walks around Paris, smoking, looking good in a scarf, goes to cafes, talks with his Nazi friend and tries to, tries to pick up women. Yeah. And, 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 and every time he does one of those things, he takes the opportunity to give a very long monologue about something just like directly into the camera. Whether it's about the sort of political no, fallout. There's of, only one monologue directly into uh, the camera. It, it's, Almost directly into the camera. No, it is. Oh, no, no, no. You feel like other ones. Oh, right. Yes. Yeah. 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 No, I just. Yeah. The one that Veronica gives at the end. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, I. Uh, no. And. Uh, the, no, he gives one into the camera. Oh, okay. Uh, the, where he's talking to Veronica about his, his friend. Oh. That, the, the, with the hand? Yeah. The hand? Oh, okay. Yeah. Because yeah, uh, that's uh, the bit that a preview clip will be of. So. Uh, yeah, so he 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 just sort of bums around Paris doing nothing. He he he's he's in this long term relationship w- w- with Marie, but he but also it's kind of it it, it it's kind she, she she she's the she's the the mother of, yeah. of the title. Well, and it's also kind of a slightly undefined relate like yeah. like no like it's implicitly defined, but it's not like they're not like live in partners. We're not de facto. We're not boyfriend girl. You know? Yeah. He talks with her like quite openly about about other women about other women that he that he sleeps with or is trying to sleep with, and sometimes she seems okay with it, and sometimes sometimes she really doesn't. Yeah, and sometimes he's just talking. Sometimes he's just he's like, "Oh, I've got this interesting thing to tell you about this woman I sleep with," and sometimes he's actively trying to antagonize her, and there's there's this like real push and pull between with like ha- there's this real like passive aggression to like both to like both of them and how they. And how how they treat each other. Well, yeah, and I an, another one of my problems with this film uh, is that the two lead women are, are entirely reactive characters that are treated both within and without of the film as if they have much more agency than they do, and so they end up being. Um, and this is almost my biggest. Like everything, all my other complaints are complaints I have about films I like. Yeah. Um, this is the thing where I'm like, I, I actually really know. Mm. Um, and, and that is that, that both the mother and the whore are, I think, very big examples of, um, a man writing women and, and giving a lot of lip service as to how much stake they have in the story and world. 
but not going through with it and that and not but not actually paying that off and that boiling down to him writing two kind of fantasies of women and like obviously part of the promise of the premise is like oh it's called the mother and the whore is that you know what are they beyond that mm. but they are also like the difference between situations where where she responds okay to him being like i saw this uh hot piece of a on the street um are uh, uh, entirely defined by how he chooses to approach it at least in my opinion and 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 how alexander is needling her and, and she just doesn't both of these characters speak a lot about their experiences outside the frame and within their own minds and lives. But they still feel to me like they are all in relationship to him. They are two kind of, I think, drafts of Manic Pixie Dream Girls. And like that, and we'll get to it when we get to it, but like... The whole point of a Manic Pixie Dream Girl as defined by Nathan Rabin was that she like comes in and, and fixes his life. Whereas yeah. very much the point of this movie is that like they cannot fix his life. And he, in fact, kind of ruins their lives. Oh, yeah. And, it, and it, that's why I said draft. Yeah. Um, oh, no. I, I, and maybe a better way to put it is like that the moment I knew I did not like Downton Abbey and is that one of the major arcs in the first episode is, you know, there's the new guy in the Abbey. Mm. And, and one of the butlers is like, I have to dress you, please. And he's like, no, I'm modern. You can't dress me. And um, and, and instead of. Uh, the the butler eventually realizing that maybe adults should be able to dress themselves. Yep. It is about the guy being like, "Oh no, I should let him dress me." Yeah. And that's the unambiguously positive ending of the plot. And I'm not saying like, no, this film doesn't end with them being like, "Hey, you're such a whore, and you're, you're such, such a mother. mother," and then they high five. Let's call the whole thing off. But but like her conflict for me, and maybe my reading is wrong, is like, oh, I'm this mother figure to you. Why don't you respect me? I'm like, is entirely kind of within that type. And isn't, yeah, she just doesn't feel real to me in a film that I think is working very hard to trade on the idea that these are quote unquote real people. Does that make sense as a set of thoughts? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um. Anyway, you... Yeah, so, so yeah, there's this woman called Marie, uh, but but he yeah he's always going around tr- trying to pick up other women. And in, in, in the in the first scene, uh, he goes to the Sorbonne where a new semester is just starting uh, uh, to to see an old girlfriend of his, uh, and he he like meets her outside of class and uh, tries to convince her to marry him. But they, they just broke up like a few months ago. You know she's uh, not into it because uh, he's a, 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 a very toxic person to be around. He's uh, yeah. he's very pushy. Yeah, he uh, he knows what he wants, and uh, he doesn't uh, doesn't like anything getting in the way of that. Well, and he does a lot of you know uh, being romantic in films from the past thing of being like, you know, I want you leave your boyfriend. Yeah. I demand it now. And like, uh, uh, this film is clearly commenting on that. Yeah, but it is it, he could very easily be doing the um, you have to step two feet away from me or I don't know what I'll yeah, do yeah. scene from Sunset Boulevard, you know? 
and yeah, so she she she's not into it. So eventually he leaves, uh, he, and he 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 goes to a cafe, uh, which what one, one of two cafes where like most of a movie takes place. Yeah, like the the the. I mean, one's a cafe and one's a bar, right? right? Or, yeah, 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 yeah. But, but yeah, there's a cafe du Maison, two somethings. I don't know. Yeah, uh, two maggots maybe. Ma- Maisons, I believe. Uh, so yeah, there's, there's this there's this bar of his cafe, both of which I believe are like fa- a famous bar and a famous cafe in in, fr- in in Paris. Yeah, there's certainly like you recognize them. Yeah, Pro- you know it's probably where the Nouvelle Vague hung out. You yeah, know, yeah. like in the way that you see that that booth where the Algonquin Round Table hung out, and you're mm. like, I've seen this forty times. You know, yeah, it, yeah. it's it, it's familiar without being placeable. Yeah, or the 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 booth in the classic where. Where I sit and talk to such luminaries as uh, Ray O'Leary and uh, usually no one else. Anyway, they go to this cafe, they go to a bar, that's where the movie takes place. The cafe, the bar, and the apartment that Marie and Alexander share. Yeah. And, and, uh, while, and while he's talking to his Nazi friend at the cafe, uh, he, he, sees, uh, uh, he, he sees a woman uh, who's uh, uh, attractive. And so mm. when she gets up to leave, uh, he follows her, and uh, he he talks to her. Uh, he he uh, he he asks her for a number. She she gives it to him. Yeah. Uh, he he calls her a bit later. He finds out that her name is Veronica, mm-hmm. and she is played by an actress called Francois Lebrun, who was uh, after this she was in a a couple of movies by Marguerite Duras. She was one of the left bank filmmakers, I believe. So yes, yeah, yeah. A while ago, she was in uh, Julie and Julia, but. Uh, that's right. She she's one of Meryl Streep's friends. Possibly. Check out if you've not seen Julie and Julia. Check it out. Uh, yeah, yeah. So so he meets this woman, Veronica. They go on a date, and then they start a relationship, which is uh, uh, also uh, often uh, very unpleasant. Um, and she is uh, two key things to know about uh, Veronica. One uh, is is that she is um, Polish. Yeah, uh, and which, you know, when you're making a film less than 30 years after World War II is a thing, yeah. uh, is a statement. And also, you know, the sexual revolution, the wave of that is still crashing in France and already kind of a sexually circular sexual revolution place. Yeah. France is like, of all the countries where the sexual revolution happened, it's weirder in France. Even at this point, France is still an incredibly Catholic country. Yeah. And there's this idea for the film of sexual liberation. But even people who have a lot of sex and seem to enjoy having a lot of sex in the movie, it's never really detached from, like, the immense guilt of, of Catholicism. Yeah. And she spends, um, she, she's also a nurse. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, she, she, she would now call her sex positive. She's having sex with lots of people. She, Veronica, right? Yeah. 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 Um, and yeah, she, she like talks about how she likes to go out to clubs and pick up guys and stuff. And, and like people at her work as well. Yeah. And, um, and, but her and Alexandra don't sleep together, right? Mm. Um, and then basically after that kind of dichotomy uh, is set up, cause she is, she's the, the whore of the title, yeah. Which I just—it feels real bad to use that word. Three hours of him talking to one or both of them, yeah, and being like, "Uh, 
so sex or life, eh? And then being like, oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and Veronica is, I think, the more manic pixie of these draft manic Oh, she, she's, she's definitely manic. Um, and, and especially because she she is this character who is sexually liberated, but her arc culminates in this um, incredibly delivered monologue. Uh, uh, Francois Lebrun was called by someone as like the 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 master of the filmed monologue, right? And, and um, having seen her in other stuff, but not really ever having focused on her, like I I buy that that's true. Mm. But basically, where where it, it plays a bit of dramatic irony, where she's talking about how uh, you know, like everyone should just have sex. Sex is great. Um, but but she starts crying. And then starts talking about how actually no, uh, sex is all about looking for love, and clearly just you know she's been searching for connection mm. and it's not been coming. Mm. <coughs> uh, and, and this is as incredibly as this monologue is performed. This was uh, one a real key moment in me being like, oh, is this a film I need to come back to and and give another go? But to me, this is uh, uh, an extended scene of a great piece of acting of a woman doing a monologue by a man um, about uh, uh, playing a character who um, is feeling like her conflict does not exist within a natural person because she is a, he is, what to me, my read on Veronica as a character is that Jean-Eustace has been like, oh, I need kind of someone uh, to balance against Marie. I need a, a whore to go against the mother. So she'll just sleep with everyone and talk about sleeping with everyone. And then uh, she'll be like, you should sleep with me, Alexander. And uh, but and when he doesn't, she'll, she'll the next time you see her, she'll be like, I went and fucked someone else. Uh, and which, to be clear, is I'm sure there are people like that uh, in the world, and, and as long as they're not hurting anyone, you know what I'm saying. Um, but then at the end, she's like, actually, I'm really sad about those things uh, uh, and, and how I've been constrained and deformed by that really feels like someone, it, it, it's not a person experiencing a moment of, of personal crisis. It is a man writing a woman going like, uh, Actually, I created you as this fantasy of sexual liberation, and then my author insert character is, you know, too cool or too nervous to sleep with you, and uh, to punish you, I'm going to make you sad. Like, the the fact that it was a man shooting this film, a man writing this film, putting the words in her mouth into his ex-girlfriend's mouth, right? Is uh, No, 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 uh, Bernadette is the yeah. one he used. Anyway, yeah. um, uh, feels really good gross to me and, and feels but they do sleep together at at a couple points oh yeah, yeah. But, but, but but yeah no not, but, but not also the, the, the like point of the movie like isn't that he's like too cool or anything no 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 but that no no like uh yeah, that was i i don't think that yeah no uh 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 no i know that is not the intended point yeah but like creating a scenario like he he um Ustash invented a fantasy of a woman and then uh, punished her. Um, simple, but it, it feels like it feels like the writing version, the misogynist writing version of why are you hitting yourself? Do you know what I'm saying? 
and uh, maybe, but like we, 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 like the, the 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 film the film knows who's hitting her, and it's it's Alexandre. He he he's he's the reason she's crying. But no, but also the but she is not specifically speak like she is speaking specifically about her relationship with him. But she also moves more generally. Yeah, and, and the idea of that this this woman who is sexually liberated, who has to break down and go, no, what I really want is love, even if it is in response to a specific person or a more general situation, I think my statement holds. Well, I'm, I'm just like, I don't know, I'm, I'm just not sure that's like an invalid thing to make a movie about. It's not invalid, but I also, if I wrote a film now, mm. Um, about a trans character, and, 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 and I am a cis man, um, and, and it's all about how great it is being <laughs> trans. Yeah. But then at the end, they 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 break down because their family like it, it is creating and playing into a stereotype. And I'm not saying that this film should be without drama, um, no. or or that she shouldn't have aches and pains. And I get that the point is that he's hurting people. It just seems cruel, and it so, seems okay. So, w- would would it would it change it for you if like we can't tell like which scenes specifically are based on like real things that actually happened to establish like or like ha- how much how much of a liberty he took with various parts of with, with various events? Yeah, but like w- would would it change it for you if if we could know for certain that that like that 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 this scene of this monologue. This like this breakdown this character has is is like an accurate representation of an actual thing that a woman that he was sleeping with had said. But in real life, no individual moment happened. Like this is all we see about this character. You know, like if if word for word this happened in real life, um, it would be happening with a person with a much deeper and realer world. Um, and so like the difference isn't like. I think someone could absolutely say and feel these things. I think the problem is is that, like, okay, building, um, okay, so imagine if uh, Wallace and Gromit <laughs> ended with, um, uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, imagine if Wallace and Gromit ended with Gromit breaking down in tears, saying that he he hated being made of clay. It's terrible that he's made of clay and all he wants to be is made of flesh. You're like, okay, that's a great idea. <laughs> but, but yeah. you I'd be but, like, oh, wow. Artman's keeping it real. <laughs> okay. Apart from, do you, but do you, like, yeah, I, yeah. it is, it just feels, and, and, and it, that's not even necessarily an invalid thing. Yeah, it's not invalid. Mm. It is just that this is a film that is trying to look at things complexly and look like real life and be like real people. And of the three lead characters, there being a man who is terrible and has all these thoughts and two women who are clearly types who are angered by being a type. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, yeah, that's, that's, I don't, it's just not as deep as I think it is, 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 is the long walk I've taken to get to that point. And I think it just feels, I, if I was a woman watching this film, I would be very annoyed by it. I mean, a lot, a lot of the, 
a lot of the most positive reviews I found on Letterboxd are written by women. Yeah, no, yeah, that's why yeah. I said me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, and maybe it is context changing, mm. but I'm just so, yeah. It is just, I'm just so bored by sex pot characters being like, it's a curse to be this horned <laughs> up, you know? It's just like then, so what else happens? Oh, they, um, they sort of hang, they sort of hang out for three hours. Well, yeah, yeah. Uh, Veronica visits uh, 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 at one point and finds Alexander and Marie uh, nude in bed. Yeah, and she climbs in bed with them, and there is this very like abortive attempt at a freeway. Yeah, which just just goes exactly as badly as you want it to. Okay, unpack that statement. <laughs> How badly? Okay, okay. So, is your first thought when you hear the term menage a trois? Oh, that's got to go badly. Well, like when you, I mean, because sometimes yeah. I, I, but I'm not talking specifically about like in 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 this movie. No, no, you you were speaking broadly. So like, how generally when you consider, you know, menage a trois, or as I like to call it, um, the Eiffel Tower wedding party. Yep. How do you want that always to go wrong? Uh. There's one episode of the Flophouse podcast where they read a letter from someone about a, like, Vice article. A guest a few years earlier on the show who was promoting a book they had written called The Werewolf's Guide to Life, which is a comedy book about yeah. werewolves. And uh, th- th- this book was, was found uh, at, at the scene of a threesome stabbing. <laughs> where, uh, <laughs> That's right. Yeah, we're, we're two sort of, like, weird uh, goth women with with a like erotic fixation on violence, found a man over the internet and got him to come to their place for for, for a threesome. And there was initially some some consensual uh, cutting and stabbing, uh, which then became uh, very non consensual uh, when they uh, stabbed him a bunch. And anyway, there's there's there an article written about how this the, the this book about werewolves was found at the scene of a crime, not noting that it was a comedy book about werewolves, not an actual <laughs> book about people who think they're yeah. werewolves. But uh, so that's how I imagine all threesomes go. Yeah. Well, uh, in my experience, mm. uh, uh, extensive, I, I assume. Well, I, I got to say, I've lived. Yeah. Um, my experience of threesomes uh, is that you know, conceptually, you're like that could be interesting, mm. but but when you know the scenario never really arises, and you're like, oh, you know, I'm. I'm I'm a I'm a I'm I'm a I'm a I'm a sexually liberated man. You know, I like to have open conversations about the, these kind of things with those nearest and dearest <laughs> to me. Uh, not related by blood. No. Nope. Uh, <laughs> You'd hope not. No, I don't hope not. I don't. Well, you can you can just never really tell. <laughs> yeah, you, you okay. Finn, <laughs> you're, you're aware that like we you can there are ways to tell if someone is related to you, and that is our sponsor for this week's episode, Ancestry.com. Ancestry.com. Make sure you're not fucking the blood relative. Ancestry.com. Another great example of what should be public information being sold to private uh, companies so they can paygate what should be knowledge that the world shares. Ancestry.com. It's just a good idea. Ancestry.com. <laughs> a website for incest porn star Ancestry. 
she's not doing well because <laughs> she's also uh, an only child orphan. So a lot of it is <laughs> her fucking the spectral beings of her blood relatives. Finn, put away your erection. <laughs> it's very inappropriate. Okay, just finish quickly. Nah, that's that. I apologize. <laughs> that clearly crossed the line. I'm talking about your. <laughs> Great stuff. You call Good your jokes. Wait, so you Good call, jokes? You call your cum back to the show? No, no, ancestry.com. No, no. Why is this still happening? <laughs> Finn, Finn, knowing this is cut, I want to ask you: Why do you call your cum? <laughs> Great stuff and good jokes. <laughs> I'm so sorry. That was so inappropriate. Uh, those are the two things I call my cum. Um, fuck me. That's the third thing. Three more things. <laughs> So anyway, movies, who'd watch them? <laughs> and so then, like, the back 40 minutes of this film... Oh, yeah. There's this attempted threesome. Yeah. Goes badly. There was one time where he's talking with either Marie or Veronica. Yeah. They're, like, sitting in bed together. They're talking about sex. And there's just this real tension to the scene. And just in the, like, way they're looking at each other. And I can't remember exactly what they were saying. But I just got this, I just got this real sense that the scene was going to end in a particular way. And I, I said to you for say it. How yeah, did well, yeah, oh, no, right, yeah. right, right, right. Okay. I was building to that. I said to you for is this scene going to end with her pegging him? And then as soon as I said that, there was a cut to him lying like face down in bed. I'm pretty sure it didn't happen, but like it could have happened in that cut. And I think they are kind of it's a conversation with both of them. Mm. It, it's a, it's a, around the menage fuck. Yeah. And it is kind of it's brought up as a possibility. So yeah. you're not. I think oh, right, it's possibly yeah. intentional. Yeah, yeah, it is. That, yeah. The threesome ends with me getting out of bed, uh, running to the bathroom, and getting, it's like a liquid uh, sleep medication, and she just tries to, like, uh, skull the whole bottle of, of, of sleep of sleep medication. Yeah. Uh, and and, and while, while she's doing that, uh, like, the, the, this movie doesn't cut a lot in scenes, but there's, like, she, she's just sculling, she's sculling this bottle of, of sleep medication. And it cuts to it cuts to Veronica and Alexander on the bed, and Alexander's like, "Well, what do I do now?" Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then he looks at the camera and says, "Ain't I a stinker?" Yeah, um, and then he goes over and stuffs his fingers down her throat and makes her throw up. Um, but also, and, and, and what Marie does? No, uh, the uh, and like and like it it, it it like it really starts to fall apart for him once once the two of them meet. Well, yeah. Because there are these attempts at a threesome which don't really go great, and the two of them aren't into each other sexually, but they, like, start to become friends. Yeah. And Marie, like, starts inviting Veronica over for dinner, and there is one scene where where, where they're going to have, like, a party at their place. And it is Marie, Alexander, Veronica, another woman that Marie is friends with, yeah. and a man that she's friends with. And when she tells Alexander that another man is coming over, even though she's explicitly said this is not a man that she has slept with or intends to sleep with, is just a friend of hers. Alexander gets incredibly angry and possessive, and he starts screaming about like, "How dare you invite this other man over?" And he he storms out of the party, 
and he gets in a car with, with Veronica and they drive off together. Yeah. Yeah. And again, like, it's, it's just new stuff being like, I was the worst fucking shithead in the world when I was in my 20s. Yeah. And, but do you know what you can do? Change. Don't make a film better. So, can I tell you what I like? But, but like, no. but, but like this, this is a person who, like, all of his work is autobiographical. Oh, yeah. And, it, he, and he is a person who works in film and... Yeah, yeah. And, oh, no. I, like, I, I, I know you're being, like, a bit, like... A like, dick. Yeah, yeah. Can, can I... Uh, can I somewhat clarify that point? Yeah, yeah. Um, do you know what I like about the work of Stephen Moffat? Um, who is, I think, in life probably been as problematic, if not more so, a man than Jean Lustas. All of Stephen Moffat's work is about creating author insert characters who think they are the coolest shit in the world. Yeah. Um, uh, to the point of being, you know, just off the top of my head, uh, a, uh, unkillable <laughs> uh, uh, super time traveler yep. who can uh, talk armies down uh, literally with just a mention of their name of their nickname yeah. uh, or the greatest detective ever or um, Jekyll and Hyde or the funniest person in the world or Dracula. Which, which, which one's the funniest person in the world? Uh, joking apart. Okay, I don't uh, know that one. Uh, it's one of his sitcoms, and no. and all like coupling, but they are all about that. The arc those characters always go on is that they start incredibly puffed up, then they start hurting people, and then eventually they learn and change. Yeah, and, and that is why I don't really buy the anti Moffat hate because I think if all of those people are doing correct readings. Um, but don't realize that that is like that is why they change. You know, they yeah. change. They they become humble. And, and uh, Jean Pierre Lerd, Alexander, at the end of this film, is obviously humbled because everything fucking falls apart. Yeah. Um, but he does not change and is instead wrecked with self-pity. And that's a key. And yeah. I, like, and I'm not saying that again, the, the end of this film should be him going like, Oh no, I'm going to be nice to him. And it is, yeah. it is the sense of change. Instead it is the feeling at the end of this is he's like, Oh, I made these people sad. Better move on. You know? Yeah. So m- my, my kind of take on that is like, like th- this, it's like the, 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 because this film is so autobiographical, the, the film itself is, is the evidence of change. And this, this is a film about himself before he changed. This is, this is a film about the sort of person he used to be and sort of what, like why he stopped being that person and the damage he did when he was that person. But he probably was fucking racked with self pity for a long time because that's, that's what like shithead men in their twenties do when they find out they've hurt people. This sort of guy whose entire life is about intellectualizing all of his dumb ideas. It, it, he, he's he's not like he's he's not going to change overnight. He is gonna he is gonna wallow in that shit. And the film is you start saying this is what I did, but I I came out the other side. I but- and uh, I think I think the film sort of demands that you have the context of Ustash. As a person, yeah, and 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 like the rest of his work, and I think like a lot of art film, it demands more from you than just 
watching the film itself. I don't. Yes. And I, yeah, I simply do not think there's enough of that in the actual film. And, right, and, yeah. and while absolutely agreeing that kind of almost definitionally art or independent film, as we discussed at the beginning, um, is, is, is film that require more context, uh, or more, or are more situationally dependent. Yeah. Uh, I do think a key part is that you should at a base level be able to get everything the film wants you to have from the film itself. Yeah. Um, and, and I, and again, combined with the, the fact that this is post Nouvelle Vague, that with the Jean-Pierre Lourdes is just, uh, one of the hottest men ever. Yeah. He's a, he's a real fucking good looking <laughs> dude. Just like, like, holy, oh, holy shit. Um, and, and, I think he has made a film that it is easier for audiences to read wrong than right. On like, entirely within itself. Yeah, I think that's definitely possible. But like, I, I would say all, all, all the people who voted for it for, for the sign sound list. Yeah, I think are all people who like it for the right reasons. I don't know if I agree with you. Uh, and I guess a thought that has just landed in my brain about this film is mm. also like, I am not opposed to films being long. Yeah. I'm not opposed to art generally being long. Um, but attendant to that is that I think, and I, uh, and I think long is not a synonym for boring. Yeah. Um, in a, while also believing that kind of if your film is over two hours or your play is over 90 minutes or your stand-up show is over 70 minutes, you should have to agree with a, you should have to argue for every minute you go over with a panel of judges. Um, uh, uh, I think, I think both of those things. And I think the key thing is that there's a sense of having respect for your audience's time um, and, and the value of your audience's time. Like one of the major problems in, in modern video games is that, um, growing expectations of how long a f game has to be has, has led to a lot of kind of flagrant disrespect for the audience's time. And I think that while this is a film that can be and should be long, there is a circularity to the conversations and a repetition without variation to the themes. Um, well, it's my uncut gems thing. My uncut gems thing is that uh, uh, uncut gems is a very good film that would be a brilliant film if every scene did more than one thing. Like, instead of having a scene where we meet Adam Sandler and then we meet his place of work, combine those scenes. And I just, and I, it's not about speeding it up, it's about complexifying it. I think that this film could have done some of that and it's almost, and it's not, and that's not me saying necessarily that it should be under three and a half hours long. It is just me saying that I wish it had done more with that time. Mm. And I mean, and again, that's not me saying it needs a fight scene. Yeah. Um, and I, yeah, I just really, I really struggle. I, no, I don't really struggle with the film. I think like the film is fine. The thing I struggle with is the pen, is the the pulpit it is given, mm. and being on this list, right? 
when like my original pitch for an intro to this was to list films that were not on the list but i think that's lazy Mm. um and i just i cannot fathom it's just not it's just not enough i think it's shite what i'm saying right and i think it's part of the reason why more people don't get into film finn do you think it is shite or sound I think when I first saw it, I, I, I don't know. I, I think, I think at the moment I'm leaning sound. And if I watched it again, I would probably give it a full sound. And I, I'm, I'm going to like over this year, I'm going to try and watch the other stuff I start what I can find and then watch this again and, and see, and see how that changes my perspective. Absolutely. And can I say that this is, I feel pretty strongly in my opinion, but I also feel it pretty strongly in a way that I'm like, I'm, I could be wrong. Hmm about this but i yeah yeah i don't think i am yeah and but the nice thing you liked it that's great um and most people do i can't really find a prevailing opinion of of someone who didn't like it so uh this is this is a uh, one and a half star review of the mother and the whore by uh, what by letterbox user uh, lauren uh, donis Consists of Alexander uh, dribbling nonsense, then Veronica interrupting to talk about how much she loves having sex, then Alexander uh, dribbles some more nonsense, and then Veronica interrupts to talk about how much she loves sex. This continues for almost four hours. It's not, inter- it's not interesting to watch, nor intelligent or profound in any way, but it sure thinks it is. Yep, she, I agree. Hmm. That person, they must have great taste in film. Yeah, not bad. Uh, would you like to guess their top four? Yeah. Uh, one is a Best Picture winner. Ah, uh, okay. Wings. The Apartment. This is a movie that, that Michael Douglas won Best Picture for. As a director. As a producer. This is a movie that, that, like, that got yeah. Michael Douglas a, a foothold in the film industry. Um, so early 80s? Uh, no, mid-70s. Mid-70s. He was a TV actor when he produced this film. Yes, yeah. yeah. Oh, yes. Um... Genre, uh, drama. No, oh, okay. Yeah, uh, and I know it. Like, obviously, I know it. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, have you seen it? Have uh, I yeah. seen it? Yeah. So I think th- 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 this is one of those films that they just like swept the Oscars. Uh, no, I'm I'm not sure if it won uh, one it won best picture. I think it won best director. It definitely won best supporting actor. Uh, or, or, or uh, no, sorry, uh, best, best, either best actress or best supporting actress, and I think best actor as well. Paper Moon? No. no, no. That, that's early 70s. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, Love Story? No. Uh, no, it is pretty much all set inside one building and, and there's like a sur- surrounding grounds, and there is a Native American character called Chief in it. Oh, One Flew Over. Yeah. Yeah, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Yes, of course. Uh, the second film. Have you seen that? Yeah, it's great, right? Yeah, it's fantastic. Yeah. The second film is a post Dogma '95 film by by one of those directors. Is it another round or mm. the Hunt? Uh, no, it, it's it's like late '90s. Dancer in the Dark. No. The Idiots. No, that's just a Dogma '95 film. Um, is it Von Trier though? No. Is it Vintnerberg though? Yeah. Oh fuck. Um, this is like his big one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh no, I can't. I know the film. Mm. Um. And it lost shitloads of money, but I cannot remember the title. Sorry. Uh, uh, the the celebration. Yes, yes, of course. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I um, I've not seen it. 
No, neither. Yeah, I, 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 look, I've, I've only seen The Hunt and Another Round from, from Winterberg. Yeah, no, his, his Doug Me films are... Um, yeah. Oh, man, The Hunt is so good. Uh, next, we've got, uh, uh, we've got, got a double shot of Kubrick. Two, two Cubos. Ah. Cubo in the two films. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay, good. Yeah. Um, okay, so, uh. What, 160s, 170s? Uh, 2K1? I've, uh, uh, yes, and, and Clockwork Orange. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay, Finn. Yeah. Finn, 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 Mickey and Maud. Blake Edwards film. You got Dudley Moore of Cook and Moore. Yeah, a an actual legend of comedy. Um, in that he's mythical. Yeah. In that there's some doubt as to whether he yeah, really no, he's a legend of comedy, and that he's played by Tom Cruise. Well, he, like he like he is quite yeah. Both 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 short dudes. Both short dudes. Um, I do really appreciate how much. Maybe the only thing I like about Mickey and Maud is how into showing off how short Dudley Moore <laughs> it is. It seems like everyone in the cast has been cast both to be very tall and then put on apple boxes like he is like you could this film conceivably could be about a child yeah just visually there's one thing i like about mickey and maud and it's a callback to a joke which was terrible the first time but i I thought uh, quite funny the second time which was uh the bit where they're screaming in the hospital room oh yeah no that was good um so mickey and maud blake edwards um and dudley moore's Follow up. They worked together on ten, yeah. a film that uh, is. For those who don't know, Blake Edwards was like a major comedy director in the sixties and seventies. Pink Panther. Yeah, he, he, made, yeah. he made all the Pink Panther films. He made The Party with Peter Sellers. He was like Peter Sellers' main guy for, yep. for quite a while. Victor Victoria. Yeah. Yep. Oh, Breakfast at Tiffany's. Oh, right, yeah. A film that's held up perfectly. Yeah. No, not a problem with it. Yeah. And I haven't seen much Blake Edwards, but. Even from people who like his films, they like very specific parts of his films. There is a thing that you get a lot with 60s comedies where there is uh, one funny character, and yeah. they do funny stuff, and the rest of it's just a drama. But because the film is a comedy, less effort has been put into those parts. Yeah, it, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a tough Becky. Uh, and I... I've seen 10 so long ago that I can barely remember it, and, and a, a number of his Pinkered Panther works. Yeah. And, and they are not... I feel about them the way I feel about Blackadder, which is that this is a group of people who I assume can do better somewhat lazily making populist work, which involves just, like, just doing funny shit. And, you know, and yeah. like, and because they're good at their jobs, it is funny. But there is a sense of like chefs taking their offcut spin and selling it as a salad, you know. And that is a, uh, I and 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 that was also my feeling about ten. I think again, mm. it's so, and I'm not going to revisit that film. Yeah. Um. But that was also kind of like my assumption about Blake Edwards and, and like, cause breakfast at Tiffany's not really a comedy, but, but maybe there's a, maybe there's an, uh, Blake Edwards text yeah. where you're like, oh no, this guy knows. 
And seeing Mickey and Maud, um, bigamy comedy Mickey and Maud, where Dudley Moore accidentally marries two women in a way so surgically designed for the audience to still be on his side uh, as to be, uh, you know, barely... It's not It's not that it's inconceivable. I mean, it's the opposite. The problem is that they, they both get pregnant. Um, as it is like, sometimes you can see the puppet strings and that's fine. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, that's part of disbelieving. And sometimes, inexplicably, the puppet strings are bigger than the puppet and it's more like an ant being hurled around on some rope. And you're like, so is the rope the puppet now? That's how this m- maneuvers him around. And, and seeing Mickey and Maud is like, was Blake Edwards ever actually, like, good? Or was he just a, always a slightly hacky populist? Yeah. And did he just luck into working with Peter Sellers a bunch? Yeah. And because another really key thing, I, we are not going to recount the plot of this film. I don't want to. It makes me kind of mad to think about it. The key thing to understand is there's Dudley Moore. He's a, a TV mm. interviewer. He wants to have kids. His wife can't have kids, it seems. Yep. He's sad. Uh, it looks like they're going to divorce. He sleeps with someone else. She gets pregnant. Uh, but at the same time, he finds out his wife is pregnant. So now, in a way that is so freakingly designed... Uh, for him to be okay about, for it to be okay. Yeah. Uh, he's now married to him and he has to keep them secret from each other. Yeah, and y- hey, you for. Yeah. Are there some door slammings in this? So many door slammings. The, the, the climactic sequence is him, Mrs. Doubt, firing between two delivery suites because they both go into labor at the same time. Yeah. And the thing is that what I've just described is not like bigamy as comedy. Is not flatly a bad idea. No, like you enjoyed Run for Your Wife. <laughs> I mean, you know, I just love Danny Dyer. You love Danny Dyer. I think you, Danny- love, you love his work. You love his personality. I and like, I'm speechless trying to think of the words to contain my pure, uncynical adoration for Daniel Dyer. I mean, his political views, I think I agree with. Hmm? Yeah, no, um, he's any, uh, he, he seems to be pretty right on. Um, but here is my thing about comedy. And obviously, we're pretty deep in the comedy world. Yeah. Like, we both, your intro calls us both comedians. Um, and, and I think we both consider ourselves comedians. Yep. Uh, I certainly think you're funny. Look. Uh, <laughs> Uh, no, you are just funny looking. Oh, can you again? Sorry, I took some truth serum. <laughs> I can't stop myself. I'm, it's, I'm like in that James Carey film, Liar, Liar. I'm like I'm in that James Carey film, The True Man Show, where he also can't lie. Yes, it, man. I am, yes, and, um, and also The Majestic. And Majestic is an acronym for me always... Just even, even so, truth is coming. <laughs> you seen the majestic? No, boring. Try, <laughs> don't watch it. Um, 
but I so I've got some pretty puritanical, and like everyone who's pretty deep in a world, I, I have pretty puritanical and, and well wrought and over considered opinions on what comedy is. Yeah. Um. And, and for me, comedy, uh, as opposed to let's say storytelling, um, like just to pick a hypothetical example, imagine that lots of people watched one piece of comedy in a year. To pick a random example. Nanette by Hannah Gadsby. And even though that was probably the only hour of comedy they watched in that year or one of a handful, they decided they were well informed enough about what the structure of comedy was to just uh, decide and declare that their opinion, again, based on seeing maybe a total of 10 hours of live comedy in their life, was that it's not so much comedy as it is storytelling, you know? Um, And I think that's a great smart, wise thing to do. Uh, yeah. And based on that, I, I, of course, don't really think um, The Marriage of Figaro is an opera. It's more a romantic comedy. Um, I think you mean a, a comantic romedy? <laughs> no. No? Romantic comedy is what they call it in the um, French and oh. Italian, uh, uh, I, I believe. I thought in France they called it... No, and like, I think that's a cool, great decision for lots of people whose opinions I respect but should know better to do, um, especially, you know, considering that Nanette is clearly a comedy. Yeah. Uh, uh, just it's, so clearly. It's a, it's a comedy special made by a comedian. It's filled with jokes. Like, if you, if you, if you are watching um, Nanette and going, like, oh, this this piece of comedy is 50 minutes of jokes followed by a 10 minute serious bit. I have great news for you about 80% of your local comedy festival. Yeah. Um, But no, I, the thing that to me defines comedy uh, is, is structure. It it is about uh, the build um, of certain amounts of information, Mm. the reconfirmation of that. And And then then the the prestige. (laughs) Yeah. And then the prestige of it. The, a set, a, 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 an ideological set of magic tricks, but it is not about visual spectacle or sensory spectacle, which is what like action or horror does with that. Yeah, it's about conceptual spectacle. It's here's an idea, here's an idea. What if we turned it over? What if we looked at it that way? Um, and and that that structure is a thing. Here's another way of looking at it. I would call a joke. And I, so what I am saying is that I think comedy should have jokes in it. And so I think the place where Mickey and Maud kind of falls down is that there are no jokes. Yeah. Is what, it's a, yeah. It's a, it's a real issue for the film. I mean, no, the real issue for the film is that, like, it exists at all. Like, Dudley Moore died young. He would have worked for six months on this. Hmm. He could have spent that time with his family um, yeah. or, or friends. He could have spent this time not talking to Peter Cook. Yeah, I mean, out of tribute to him, that's how I've spent a lot of my life as well. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's another Princess Bride connection. Okay, so this movie has... Has both Wallace Shawn and Andre the Giant in it. Yeah. Uh, and this movie came out two years before The Princess Bride. Yeah. So this is where Wallace Shawn and Andre the Giant met, probably. And, unless. They unless, don't share a scene. Yeah, this. sure, but they, they, they were probably on set at the same time. Or if it was like a rap party. Like, the, the, two, the, two, of, the two of them must have met on this. Uh, I don't know. I don't really think that hip hop 
had taken up enough to celebrate Blake Edwards films with, with a rap party. But yeah, yeah, okay. Great, great joke. Yeah, but it's still a joke, yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Whereas this film, the joke is like, what if a man married two women? And it was awkward. And you're like, I mean, yeah, that is what it would be like. <laughs> yeah, so being like two, two, two years after this, Wallace Shawn and Andre Jean would be in a movie again. Would be in a movie again. Yeah, with a Princess Bride, and I mean Peter Cook is in that movie. Yeah, wow, that's a that's another movie like Mickey and Maud that people inexplicably like. I mean, that, that one's got jokes in it, though. Yeah, no, I'm not so. Yeah, yeah, I, I don't disagree with you. I just uh, think a lot of what people like about Princess Bride is nostalgia. Well, yeah, it's literally a movie about a child being read a story by their granddad. But it, it, yeah, but yeah, it's, it's not. But yeah, it, no, but it's, it's like, entirely a movie that's like this is going to make you feel safe and happy. Yeah, got a one eye in it. A cyclops, Mister Glass Eye, Peter Falk. Oh, yeah, you still on your Columbo tip? Yeah, started, started watching Columbo recently. Good, I like it a lot, and uh, I can't wait for the four separate episodes where Patrick McGowan is the, is the killer. Spoiler. That's a Columbo joke. Yeah. It's the first scene of every Columbo is the crime. Well, in the first Columbo, the first 45 minutes is the crime. Like an irreversible? Yeah, Columbo is yeah, it's just like irreversible. Why are you deliberately looking away from me? I don't know. I thought I'd try it out for a bit. It doesn't seem to be working. It is creating a lot of noise with the cable. Okay. Uh, anyway. Um, and the thing no there are okay there are attempts at jokes there are things in Mikey in no Mickey and Maud every time yeah. and I'm very proud that I've stopped myself up until now there are so many things in Mickey and Maud that are clearly presented to be jokes yeah there, there are lots of situations that it puts Dudley Moore in where he's got to bumble and stumble and trying to come up with a lie and the, and the thing is is that if Dudley Moore is hilarious I love his work in other places. But as I said to you during this, if this was my only experience of Dudley Moore, I would think that the world had lost its mind. Yeah. I think he said specifically, whoever the star of the movie was just didn't show up. And they got like a grip or something to just yeah. be the lead. Like how Greg Sestero ended up in the right, room. Yeah. 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 Um, and, and like, and he's not, and I want to be clear, this grip that they've cast in the role of Dudley Moore he doesn't do a bad job. He knows how to be on a camera. He knows mm. how to act. But there is no, it is just him Dudley mooring around as like someone doing an impression of Dudley Moore being like, yeah. oh, and, and because the film goes to such pointed lengths to build the character into a position, which is like, well, he has to get married. It's the only good well, thing. Because the movie wants to be heartwarming. Yeah. Like it, it, it wants to, it wants to be like a sex farce, but it also wants to be, it wants you to feel good at the end. It wants you to believe in both of these relationships and want both of them to continue. And, and like a key point, well, I mean, which is kind, which is kind of an interesting thing for a, for a bigamy comedy to do. Yes, but it, it it doesn't do it in an interesting way. But combining bigamy comedy with farce, or and at times it's a comedy of manners. Yeah. Um, uh, is that both of those genres rely on characters? having protagonists that the audience at times disagrees with 
and that the film wants you to disagree with, yeah. you know, um, because the other, the experience of watching this film is watching him be like, oh, you should just be honest at every step along the way, you know? Yeah. Like, this is a big example of, you know, how there are films where the solution is uh, just tell, just talk about it. Yeah. <laughs> just, just tell people. Definitely. Definitely. Now, it works on stage. Sure, but I've, I've only seen the movie where it doesn't work. Yeah, let's not talk about local film. Yeah. Um, but when he needed her most, he couldn't mm. find the language. Mm. I mean, libraries have got dictionaries, mate. We should say that Mickey, his, his original wife, is, is played by an actress called Anne uh, Ryan King. Is that just Anne King King in German? I mean, Maud is played by Amy Irving from yeah. Harry. Yeah. And... Uh, she she's a she's a cellist, yeah. And uh, 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 Mickey is a is a judge. One is is like their big well, she, argument. She starts off as a lawyer, then she becomes a judge pretty yeah, early she, on. And, and, and um, but the but yeah, combining a bigamy comedy with with yeah farce and comedy of manners require you to disagree with the character, right? Like. So much of Faulty Towers' success, um, uh, as as much as John Cleese is doing his best in the modern world to retroactively remove it, uh, is is that that all the characters in that are different kinds of monster, but you understand what they're doing. Like yeah. you're not you relate to them rather than like them. Yeah. And this film is spending so much so energy. One, one's a one's a one's a man monster. One's a woman monster. One's an immigrant. I don't believe it's that simple. I, I, I know. That's, that's the joke. No, but you're so serious. Yeah. That's your first joke. Hey. Congratulations. Hey. Nearly nearly a year of the podcast, and yeah, you made your first joke. No, over five years into comedy. You've been doing comedy for nearly a quarter of your life. How does that feel? Uh, not great. One... Kind of interesting narrative idea is how that has to be like, because he's going to be like, um, the reason he has to marry Maud is because her family, her father is a wrestler. Yeah. And so he goes to break up with her and, and, and um, but she, but meets his family who are wrestlers, including Andre the Giant. Her father is played by someone who is credited as hard boiled Haggerty. Yeah. Is that like that? Like that's that's a funny idea. But when you're building to like, oh, this guy, how's he deal with both of these things? Because he is kind of they've built a machine so specifically designed to build to these fast moments. Mm. And Mrs. Doubt firing between two delivery what rooms rooms. Yeah, you end up with him. There ends up being no tension apart from the tension of you watching it and being like. You know, it it just becomes like a sequence. It becomes like a slide that you and the characters go down. And like the moment it introduces tension is is entirely it, uh, accidental, which is like it ends with him essentially can like he gets found out. They both get divorces, and, and it's like a similar sort of thing to what happens in the Mother and the Whore, where like the two women meet and they become friends, and they both decide no, this guy sucks. Yeah, and. Yeah, and, and so they 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 say we, we've decided you're gonna you're gonna divorce both of us, and you're never gonna see your kids again. And then there's a couple scenes where he's like, "Oh, I'm so sad," blah, blah, blah. and then he 
he he he breaks into Mickey's house, dressed as Santa in the middle of the night, so he can see his kid. <laughs> and she comes and tries to hit him with her handbag, and then realizes that it's him. And they end up sort of getting back together. And then he goes to see Maud, and somehow ends up talking to her, even though she hates him. And then they sort of get back together. And he continues the con, yeah. but now successfully is and, so. And then and then the the, the final shot of the movie. Is there has been a like ten year time dash, and he is now he is now sitting on a bench in the park, just covered in children, all, all of the children that he's had from both Mickey and Maud, and the the yeah the the, the cons continued. He's he's the world's most successful bigamist. He's doing a great job. He's raising all these kids. He's having a good time. It and it just. And like you're at, at that point, you're just like, "Oh fuck this guy!" <laughs> and, and but that is not like it is so. This film just seems so fundamentally misconceived, yeah, and, and misproduced. And it is like, like we talked about, like the whole gag of like someone who doesn't. I just and I just found it, it was so boring. Yeah, it was so irritating. And I'm just so, it's shite. It's, it's, no, it's very, very shite. And it, there's, it's, just, it's also like, there's nothing. Maybe the one, yeah. Fuck. Like, it is, it is, like, there's an interesting thing in that, like, Dudley Moore feels so much like a performer who can kind of make a film good with personality. Yeah, his, his whole thing is, he, he's there, he's a, he's a scamp. Yeah. And he's he's always getting away with stuff, but oh, he's charismatic, and you love him. And and th- this one was trading so hard on that, and it do- it doesn't it doesn't work. And also, like with like like the Russell Brand's uh, bad remake of Arthur, oh, kind of Arthur. Fuck, I, I was trying to remember what yeah, yeah. what that movie was called. Yeah, yeah, with with Greta Gerwig and Helen Mirren, yeah. both and doing- John and John Hodgman. Yeah, um, and, and kind of. Like the point of that film seems to be like, no, no, what you need is Dudley Moore. Dudley Moore is someone who can come in and make anything good. Mm. Um, which is also kind of my memory of 10. Um, but this kind of reveals that the most interesting takeaway from this film is how much a misconceived idea or misexecuted idea no one can save it. There are ideas yeah. so bad you can't come back from it. So yeah, uh, it's shite. Um, and, and I don't really want to talk more about it. Mm. And I just, I think of all the films we have seen so far, this is the one I would recommend the least because there's yeah. not even, it, it, it's, it's not the worst, but it is the least interesting. Yeah. No, there's just, there's n- really. Yeah. It, it, yeah. It's just a shitty comedy with no jokes. And like, it, yeah, it is interesting because uh, obviously we like to consider um, all different views. Mm-hmm. There are, uh, so I'm looking here on uh, social media platform Letterbox, um, and there are no five star reviews. No. Um, Understandable. And a lot. I'll, I will pick an example. Almost all the positive ones are clearly someone who have i think grew up with blake edwards films as like a default of what yeah. good comedy is and, and, and being like oh yeah this is another one it's good in the way that like my inbuilt nostalgia for the bond films 
means that even the worst, most vile, most racist ones are still kind of good to me on a primal level. Right, yeah. Even though I know on like a reflexive level, um, even though I would not give them four and a half stars. Like, for example, a letterboxed user, Joe. <clears throat> and this, I think this also reveals, I think this opinion he's about to express about the film inadvertently reveals a lot of the film's problems. Four and a half stars. Dudley Moore played one of Blake Edwards' signature benign cads in 10 to great effect, but his Rob here is sort of an inversion of that character type. A saintly, would-be family man with no who, through no fault of his own, ugh, ends up married to two women at the same time with parallel pregnancies to boot. Parallel pregnancies, that just seems like a horrific medical malpractice, <laughs> like two babies jutting out of a pregnant woman like railway sightings. Which is, which is something we, we end up imagining in the film to, to make it more enjoyable. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay, you recount this. They're, 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 in, in this scene, we're, they're both in adjoining delivery rooms <laughs> and both of them are like lying on beds, just like screaming and, and Dudley running back, back and forth doing bad jokes. And like what what I wanted to have happen was for two women, for two women to for, for the like hospital beds to be each facing the same wall, and they're screaming so hard, and then eventually the babies just both come out at the same time and fly through the walls and collide together and become uh, one uh, conjoined uh, uh, become one uh, conjoined uh, child. <laughs> Yeah, that is the kind of level of mania you end up yeah. with while while watching this. Is that you start You're like I want to see some babies explode like, into, into a body horror person. Yeah, that will make this good. Like the the joke I made when he broke into the house to steal his child dressed as Santa was that like no, the interesting film version of this is that he now like kills his baby to get revenge, and it's a Medea narrative, <laughs> you know. Um, but but anyway, Joe's the the, 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 the Greek the Greek Medea, not not the Tyler Medea. I mean, I've not seen enough of, like, I presume at some point someone Medea's in Medea. Um, uh, but Joe continues, whether you choose to buy that or not is probably a simple matter of suspension of disbelief. No, it's not. Like, I buy it within the narrative. The problem is, is that I don't buy the narrative that's mm. built. Like, the machine works. It's why build the machine in the first place. Yeah. Um, sorry, Joe. Um, but in any case, it falls apart a little in the end. Rob's situation is so intractable, and maybe the same things that make the story so compelling preclude a satisfying ending for any of the three leads. But there's stuff in here that is some of the best Edwards ever did. Oh, no. Imagine that being true. Um, culminating in a truly bravura set piece that, that sees more attempting to juggle both wives as they go into label at the same time at the same hospital. Eat your heart out, Mrs. Doubtfire. Dick Van Dyke fans will enjoy hearing both Amy Irving and Anne Ryan King deliver pitch perfect. Oh, Rob, several times each. Oh, because... Uh, Dick Van Dyke's character's name was Rob. Um, okay. And, and I, like, the 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 joke we both actually la laughed at in the film mm -hmm. is because he starts, um, his his deception, one of Dudley Moore's deceptions uh, is that Maud is a, a crazy woman. 
Yeah, so who we, claims we, to be his sister-in-law, something yeah, so, like that. Yeah, there's one point where we're we're both in the same like doctor's office at the same time, and uh, and then like two doctors uh, come out, and they're both uh, and, and, and 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 both the doctors call for uh, and both of the doctors call for Mrs. Stellinger, and so then 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 when they get to the hospital, and they're both in labor. There, there, there is another there's this like callback of like oh there's a Mrs. Mrs. Stellinger in this room oh there's a Mrs. Stellinger in this room. And and then both both of them find out there's another Mrs. Salinger. They both want to meet the other Mrs. Salinger, and so he has to keep running back and forth between the rooms to try and like make sure that that they don't come in. And at one point early in the film, there is a uh, uh, him and Maud are watching TV, and there's like a bit where some like mo- I think they're watching like the original King Kong or something, and there's some monsters that are screaming, and they both start like standing up on the couch and screaming yes, at each yes, other. Yes, it is the original King Kong. Yeah, yep, yep. yeah, yeah. And yeah, and so and so there's just the scene, but it's not funny, of Amy Irving and Dudley Moore standing on a couch just going at each other. Yeah. And it's not good. But then when Dudley Moore's running back and forth between the rooms, he yeah, he 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 tells his first wife, Mickey, that uh that that that, that the other Mrs. Selinger is is like crazy and is doing all sorts of weird stuff and you shouldn't go in there, she's you know She's got like pregnancy madness or whatever. Yeah, and and it, it, this is all the contrived reasons to prove that he's not. Yeah, yeah. And he 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 runs out of a room and he runs. Uh, he 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 runs back into Amy Irving's room mm. uh, and he, he he tries to he tries to block the door mm. so that Mickey, who is being wheeled in to meet Maud, can't get in. He's blocking the door, mm. but he can't let Maud know that he's blocking the door. Stop someone getting in. So he starts screaming. And then Mickey starts screaming. Uh, sorry, then Maud starts screaming, and Maud stands up on the bed while still in labor, and just starts and starts like convulsing and screaming. And he starts convulsing and screaming yeah. while holding the door shut. And it's for one, it's for one like like good bit of physical comedy in in the in the in the film. And then and then like, and it, it's funny because it goes so it goes so, so long far. and it goes so big. Yeah, yeah it, it it turns into like. Commedia delate, physical extension, yeah, it, it, craziness. Like, yeah, it becomes deranged. Huh? Like how how loud how loudly they're screaming at each other. But also, like there are real issues around representation in Blake Edwards' work. Mm. But uh, but that is true of almost all comedy ever made. Yeah. Uh, and, and so I don't think it's innately wrong to be nostalgic for Blake Edwards' work. Uh, and, and and thusly, I don't think it's like innately a crime that some people look at this film and think like, oh, it's nice, you know? Do you want to guess what Joe's top four films on social media platform Letterboxd uh, I'll, is? I'll, I'll give it a shot. Uh, uh, any of them Blake Edwards films? No. One, one is, I think, a clear inspiration uh, I think it's also maybe Paris Hilton's favorite film. When is it from? Um, uh, it's from 1959, and it's surprisingly not as big a camp classic as you'd think. I think the only movie I know is from 59 is 400 Blows. No, <laughs> you, you, we, we will see this film, um, and, and you have at least started it. Oh. And you didn't finish it, but nobody's oh, right. perfect. It's, 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 right, sound like it hot. Yeah. Uh, the next is a <coughs> yeah no I, I believe it, it, I believe someone like a hole was ever top of Paris Hilton's uh, sight and sound ballot yeah um a because her catchphrase 
I, I didn't that's know that was hard. a catchphrase. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's right. Because you're, you're, you probably weren't alive when that happened. Yeah. Um, the third one is a eight minute long, uh, horror short from 1940, directed by Norman McLaren, Ellen, Mary Ellen Butte, and Ted Namath. Uh, I don't think I know that one. Yeah, it's called Spook Sport. Uh, nope, don't know it. Uh, the next one is, to me, an iconic video cover and film poster. There, there was a period of time where it was in the window uh, of Arrow Video. I grew up in the Arrow Video, which is another like pretty fundamental reason why, why I'm into film. Um, it's directed by Anthony Waller. Uh, I don't know what else. Okay, and- I... I, I know the name. It, it, it's, it's, and you will know the title of this film. Yeah. yeah. The thing is, it's that it's cast isn't like, it's cast of people like Marina Zadina, Faye Ripley, Evan Richards, and Igor Volkov, who are all like accomplished actors, but just not, you know? Yeah. Like, it, it is hard to give clues that aren't the title of the film. Um, so I'll have to stay pretty quiet on this. We'll have to stay pretty quiet oh, on whether I've seen this. Right, okay. It's, it's, it's that one where there's, yeah, there's like lips on the poster, right? Well, what, what's happened to the lips it's on the poster? Like sewn shut? Yep. Yeah, I, I don't know what it's called, but we're, we're, we've, like, we've, we've done it before in another... In, in another yeah, uh, Mute uh, Witness. Mute Witness, right. Uh, and the last one uh, could be called The Fox and the Hound. Um, uh, but it's not. It's a live action. One of the early films shot on digital. Uh, Mark Ruffalo's in there. Uh, it's a masculine film. It was de- definitely directed by a man. The Collateral. Ding! Yeah. Uh, I was going to say Collateral until you said Mark Ruffalo. I didn't know he was in Collateral. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Um, have you seen it? No. Yeah, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna check it out sometime this year. I just rewatched Heat, which I think I get now. What isn't there to get? I mean, the first time I saw Heat, I was just like, "Yeah, this is fine." And the second time I saw Heat, I was like, "No, this is actually uh, pretty good." And I think if I watch it again, I'll be like, "Oh yeah, this uh, 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 this rules," and I want to tell everyone about Heat all the time. Heat. You should watch Got LA Kilmer. Takedown. Got Kilmer. Yeah. No, I don't. I don't want to watch LA Takedown. It's gonna be boring. But it's like it's, it's it's the bits of it that I hate are literally exactly from Heat, but with worse actors. Yeah. It's, in, it's an incredible <laughs> exercise. Yeah, check it out. Maybe. You got the time. Yeah, but I've I've also got so much good stuff that I haven't watched yet. For example, uh, my 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 entire Agnes Varda box set that I spent like four hundred dollars on. Yeah, that is that is pretty dumb fuck of you. Ben. Yes, you've heard. What are we watching next week? Uh, next week, we are watching uh, Barry Lyndon, one, one of the uh, very Kubrick movies I've never seen. So I'm, I'm going to try and watch uh, the. Uh, so I'm going to try and watch the Seafarers, uh, Killer's Kiss, and Fear and Desire uh, before then. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm a massive fan of Kubrick, and I've 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 heard like a lot of people think this is his best movie. I'm. I'm very excited to see this one. Yeah, I... Everything I've seen of it looks incredible. Yeah, I saw it when I was 15 to 20 and mm. at one point did all of Kubrick and uh, it 
I remember it being boring, but I also remember not really paying attention. And the amount of people I respect who are like, no, this is actually uh, incredible, beautiful, epic comedy. Yeah. Makes me think we're really in for a treat. But then again, uh, that was all, you know, uh, I didn't like the mother in the hall. Yeah. Um, and, and his, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to doing yeah. it. And and with that, we are watching the Baz Luhrmann adaptation of The Great Gatsby. Yeah. So, that's right, that's The Connection, a film about a Baz and a film by Baz. And they're, they're both about social climbers. Yeah, but, but main, mainly mainly the Baz thing. No. <laughs> no, Finn, there's only one... There's only one thing in the... Only one thing can be... Um, Ben. So, The Great Gatsby. I've never seen I've never seen any of Baz Luhrmann's films. You've never seen any of I've Baz never, Luhrmann's films? I've never seen a Baz. You're not... I've never seen Romeo plus Juliet. I've never seen any of his other films. Strictly Ballroom. Nope. Australia. No. Nope. I haven't seen The Get Down. People seem to like that. And there's another no. one, right? Probably. They, you haven't... You weren't... I thought it was kind of... It just speaks a lot to the schools I went to, but both in both primary school and high school, the start of teaching us Shakespeare was showing us uh, Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet. Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet is, is baked into my, my DNA as both a theatre and film person, and is, I want to be clear, not a bad film. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was the last time it was appropriate for Leonardo DiCaprio <laughs> to be dating someone so young. Uh, in, yeah. in the text, uh, uh, anyway, uh, I cannot. Yeah, you don't oh, see Moulin Rouge. No. Why? I just feel like you have a whole kind of. You obviously are not deep into camp, but you don't hate camp, right? I just feel like there's a whole kind of tranche of camp. I just worry how much happiness you deny yourself, and I, I believe you're worthy of happiness. Hey, Finn. Yes, you, Finn. I'm, I'm just signing up some social media platforms. Oh, I'm, yeah. on, I'm on Twitter as at YouthaLives. I'm on Instagram as at YouthaLives. I've got a, a Facebook fan page at, um, at AntiVaxDad69GothForGoth. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I, I've been like, like I, I feel like we're, we're getting quite close as colleagues. Um, and I would be interested in following you on some of these social media platforms. So, Finn, like, what's what's your LinkedIn? Uh, who cares? Oh. But you know what? You can find this show, Shite and Sound. Oh, wow. On Twitter at Shite Sound Pod. Or you can email us at ShiteSoundPod at gmail.com. You know what I've just remembered? Yeah? We have a website. Really? It's at ShiteAndSound.com. Check it out. Hey, and if you like the show, which uh, if you've gotten to this point, you do, um... Why not tell your friends? We don't have a marketing budget um, and, and spread the word. Um, but, like, I don't want you just telling everyone because we are, and I say this with a lot of love for both of us, pointedly an acquired taste. <laughs> like, we are the niche for the niche, you know? Yeah. And, and that's what I like about this show. Um, I know the thing I like about this show is... Uh, uh, we are creating content that maybe only we like, and but and that's enough for me. Yeah. Anyway, 
But I think you'll know like one other person who I think will really dig this show. Like someone in your life will be mildly amused by the fact that our name is a parody of Sight and Sound. Yeah. Uh, the, the BFI magazine. Like tell them. Um, you don't just need to, you know, you know, we're not pick your target, but take a shot. Um, our theme song is The Nuts by Kazam Blam. Check him out on Bandcamp. Mickey's are good. Even the moored ones. Go, Go watch them. Welcome to Shine Sound. I'm Yutha Shite. And I'm Ben Sound <laughs> Nicholas. And it's Weird Voices Week. <laughs> and I'm uh, Shine Sound. It's a relationship advice podcast. For those out there exploring the limits of their erotic and romantic experience. And this week we're doing questions from our listeners. Been you excited to share your wisdom with our horny audience? Yep. Okay, so we've got a first question in here. This is from Susan, made-up name. She says, Yutha, Finn, my boyfriend is too good at sex. He's so good that he refuses to ever have sex with me, saying that it would kill me. How do I... And talk my boyfriend into killing me with a coitus. Finn, you're a coital expert. What's your advice on this? How do you talk people into having sex with you? And uh, just want to do a retake on that. Finn, how do you create the best scenarios <laughs> for consensual conjoining of the bathing suit? Areas. This is this is just <laughs> as bad as all the other ones. No, this, this is, is good. This is Yupa's fifth take in an intro. No, it's good. The ones had to be discarded for various reasons. But uh, look, Finn, I don't know what was wrong with listing women's names and deciding whether they were mothers or whores. Oh. God, why did I think it was... Uh, yeah. Ironically, yeah. I want to be clear. Yeah, but even yeah. then, there's no good way to do that bit. Fun. Yes. Let's, let's help this Chiquita out. 
Uh, how does she talk her boyfriend into pooning her to the other side? Staying silent but steady there. Respect that. Like this, this feels weird if we were, were we ranked women. <laughs> really? Yeah. Why? Just give bad advice. It's a joke, but it's not. No, I, I literally have no idea what I would possibly say. Uh, okay. Like, okay. this is exactly the sort of bit that I'm not built for. Uh, uh, I mean, uh, then that's the joke, Finn. 